And good morning, everyone, or good afternoon, or good evening, whichever may be the case around this rotating globe. Welcome to another edition of The Other Side of Midnight, that magical time between dusk and dawn, where tonight we're going to talk about a literal revolution in civilization, because that's what we're going through. In every direction that we look, apropos of tonight's banner, uh, we're not in Kansas anymore. And if you think you are, if you think things are ever going to return to, quote, normal, then I've got a uh, 1935, 33 movie that you should see. A really good movie. Really, really good. So tonight I have my old friend and colleague, Joseph Farrell, finally, after... I, it's been years. It, it's really been years, you know, together on the same show. We've, we've communicated, but we haven't done any shows. And so much has happened, which I'm going to try to put on the table tonight, set the table as the background to Joseph's conversation with, with us. And so let me begin. For those of you who are new to the show, you go to the other side of midnight.com. Click on tonight's banner. That will take you to the guest page. Under the guest page, you will see uh, lines that say things like, oh, let me see. Uh, fast links to items and fast links to bios. Um, you click on my items, click on my name. That will take you to the appropriate part of the guest page we call Radio with Pictures. So item number one, one of the really important backdrops for this conversation tonight is, of course, it's the literal two-year anniversary of the insanity going on in Ukraine, which has only proceeded by, like, what, a year, uh, give or take, a year and a half, before the insanity going on in Israel and Gaza. The world is not moving in the right direction. It is obviously, obviously, precipitously hurtling toward some kind of a cliff. I have not felt the hot breath of nuclear war since I was in the first grade, since Duck and Cover, you know, and Conrad and uh, Fulton Lewis Jr. And, and, you know, the usual things that were going on at the height of the Cold War um, when I was of an age where I could listen and to understand that the world was really dangerous. Well, it's, it's worse tonight. It's really worse tonight, which, of course, is what uh, item number one is all about. This is from The Hill, which is the official uh, congressional newspaper published on The Hill. G7 leaders admonish Russia for irresponsible nuclear rhetoric, the second anniversary of Ukraine war. And then you click on that. This is, this is really memorable. The group of seven G7 leaders reprimanded Russia Saturday for its use of irresponsible nuclear rhetoric on the second anniversary of the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine. Quote, Russia's irresponsible nuclear rhetoric, its posture of strategic intimidation, and its undermining of arms control regimes are unacceptable. And that's the way it goes, because this is the backdrop. My, my position, my absolute adamant feeling is that unless something radically overwhelmingly huge in the 
history of humanity takes precedence, assumes somehow priority in people's concerns and rhetoric, that civilization, as you and I know it, is headed for the crash heap of history. And civilizations do not die peacefully or quietly. They are very, very dangerous, as Carl would say, to beagles and begonias. So the good news tonight is with my old friend and colleague, Joseph, I'm going to share with him stunning, amazing new lunar revelations coming from this ongoing mission, I Am One, or Odysseus, that are going to, in the coming days, blow the doors off of the cover-up as more and more honest people are taking a look, are going to take a look. And so through this show and through other shows that I'm going to be doing in the coming few days, a lot of people, millions of people are going to know that the IM team, the Intuitive Machines team in Houston, which has sent now the first successful private mission to the moon, and it's a U.S. mission. They have been communicating, kind of like in code, the reality of what is around the moon, this incredibly vast, incredibly ancient, incredibly high-tech, ancient lunar glass dome. Smart architecture, not just glass. My dear friend, Joseph, has made, made years ago, although I don't think he knows it, a major contribution on the road of providing additional, totally independent confirmatory evidence of the dull model by pointing me in a direction that until I read one of his uh, uh, last books, The What About McCarthy, which is full of really, really interesting gems, but you got to dig three layers deep, okay? Anyway, so it was that when we when we get Joseph on, I will I will go through how he really made an extraordinary contribution to this investigation, and it has paid off. So, item number two: this is the official NASA news conference with Intuitive Machines, who's the company in Houston which is built and paid for raising capital using the usual capitalist stuff. The first private mission to the moon. And it's sitting on the moon tonight. Well, yes, it's sitting on the moon. And no, it's not sitting on the moon. Go to item number three. This is a uh, Space News story gleaned from the press conference in the link above as to what has happened to the Intuitive Machines' first American corporate lunar lander. It tipped over. It's not sitting upright. It's lying flat on its side like a like somebody pushed over, some kid pushed over a phone booth or a TARDIS, the same size. They're all the same size. Not an accident, according to Intuitive Machine. Anyway, so if you look at that picture, and if you actually click on the story, item number three, and click on that picture, which is below this, you can see that in the little model, isn't it great to have modelers and model people that understand the incredible value of a model, even in a digital age? So he got, this is the, the head of uh, Intuitive Machines, uh, Alterman, Steve Alderman. Anyway, so he's got this lander tipped over. He thinks, they think, his team thinks, NASA thinks, interpreting the telemetry. 
that the lander sometime between landing and yesterday, yesterday morning, tipped over. Or it may have tipped over from the beginning and they just got late readings and whatever. The point is it's on its side. Now, that has huge implications for the success of the mission going forward, the real mission. And we're not going to spend a lot of time tonight on uh, Odysseus because we're going to do that tomorrow night with our special guest at the top of the show, Nova Spivak, who I can say categorically, looking at the model there in uh, Steve's hands, is father, grandfather, you know, the, the Harry Selden of Space Archives, of a bouncing baby lunar archive on the moon, successfully sitting in the body of that tipped-over lander. And that's not going to be a trivial or, 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 or complicated issue for people forevermore to spot. So now we know where the first American lunar archive is that successfully landed, as opposed to the similar archive that he put on Barashit, the Israeli mission several years ago, which crashed. Both archives are still there. You know, the crash did not destroy the archives because of the incredible technology that uh, Nova has brought to the bear, the subject of, of ancient, long-survivable archives. You inscribe them with little teeny tiny drills in nickel, the element nickel, metal nickel. Who would have thought that nickel was so valuable? Anyway, so they'll last... Some estimates are that those archives, Nova's archives, which, by the way, drumroll please, includes now two copies of Monuments of Mars, a city on the, on the edge of forever, and the secret mission, the dark mission of NASA, on the moon in the archives tonight on the lunar surface. And not a lot of people can say that. Which brings me to item number four, because... Um, the ongoing uh, Odysseus mission, before it landed, went into what's called a lunar parking orbit for a day or two, went around and around and around, and they released one picture at the press conference up above from the press conference of the actual moon as it looks like from lunar orbit. And it is so stunning, so paradigmically shattering, so impossibly confirming ancient lunar dome glass model because it was designed to be. I've been wondering ever since they sent us back the first images from low Earth orbit why the um, Odysseus mission has these incredibly wide angle lenses on the cameras, you know, where you see huge distorted view of the lander and then you see a distorted view of what's you know in space next to the lander in the first image it was the earth and the distortion gets a lot worse at the edge than it is in the center as you can tell from the um, shot of the falcon 9 second stage in earth orbit stunning beautiful shot you know interesting scientifically stunning poetic and i said to myself then okay we have really good cameras and when we get into lunar orbit, they're going to blow our socks off, provided we get to see a picture. Well, they released one picture. There's nothing from the surface. They landed Thursday, uh, and, and in the afternoon, it's now Friday, Saturday, almost Sunday. 
no images, no nothing from the surface. But we did at the press conference get this image. This is so astonishingly important. Click on it and look at it really carefully. And then let me read to you a response from a, quote, layman. This is someone who's not like an engineer or a scientist or a space guy or whatever. It's just, he just, just happens to be an award-winning jazz musician. And he is also, we're so really, really, really lucky, um, our um, audio expert, you know, balancing and listening and trebling out. And he and Kampia do this kind of do-si-do with, with the shows after they're recorded. And believe me, Chris is a huge part of why they actually sound halfway decent. Anyway, so he wrote to me this afternoon after seeing the photo, which you're seeing in item number and he wrote this hi richard i wish sometimes that i had a scientific or engineering background so i could make a quali quantified i sorry qualified assessment of such things i.e this picture but the bizarre orbital photo released by intuitive machines seems to me to show the dome remnants clearly outlined around and above perimeter of the moon especially on the right-hand portion of the image. If not, then what is it? Don't scientists and journalists see this? Furthermore, the weird reflective mirror image of the sun on the left seems to split into the two mirrored sides at the same distance from the moon's surface as is the apparent dome on the right-hand side. I also felt that the congratulatory proclamation that the spacecraft was upright and the landing was success were extremely premature. But then again, what was the NASA administrator to do other than read his pre-written speech? It's even worse, Greg. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris. Um, he had a tape. That, that, that was not live. That was a tape that they punched in when they thought they were landing upright. Seems like, going back to Chris, Seems like just another in a series of confirmations of your well-researched series. It's almost Trumpian, if I may use that phrase, in how the narrative is not the reality and mainstream folks are not yet seeing what's staring them in the face or questioning what's really being told to us. Am I in the right ballpark on this, he said. I realize there is also a possibility that surface photos post-landing may be currently sequestered and sanitized rather than non-existent. Thanks for keeping me on the email thread. It's been as fascinating to see how you all are trying to get to the bottom of this. And again, thanks and keep up the great work. Signed, Chris. So... If you, well, let, let, let's do this, all right? Let me bring on my guest and friend and colleague and longtime confidant on things that go bump in the night. Um, Joseph is, is well, how can I describe him? He's, he's kind of like a one of a kind. Um, he's written now, oh my God, I got it. One, two, three, four, five, six, Seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 
20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35 books and counting, because this is not a complete list. I know that. On the ancient super high civilizations of Earth, the remnant technology and the current geopolitical infighting going on totally behind the scenes for who is going to control all this as they move us paradigmically into a new age. And he is a, um, he's got a PhD in, I think it's theology from Oxford, if I'm not mistaken. And there's a whole bunch of other creds, you know, he's, he's a bestseller. Uh, he has his own uh, uh, YouTube channel and much more, you know, determination to do that than I, I have. Anyway, without further ado, Joseph, welcome to the other side of midnight. Hey, Richard, how are you doing? I am doing great. I have so, as the world is turning inside out like a, you know, Triassic cube in front of us to, to want to talk to you and to talk to you in front of all our, our folks out there. Um, did you look carefully at image number four? Uh, let me look right now. I don't think I did. Where are we? Where is it on your page? Image number four. Yeah, there's a shortcut. Keith, you want to tell him how to get to the shortcut to the images? Hello? I don't think he's listening. <laughs> he may have had to go out. Of the oh, wait a minute. Here. Image number four. Yeah, All right. Yeah. There we are. Yeah. Uh, okay. What are you looking at? Yeah, I have no idea. It looks to me well, like... Well, but, 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 you're, 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 like you're incredibly wise, aging like I am, you know, father wisdom and background and generalist expertise. And you're looking at an official NASA image and you say, paraphrasing, I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. Well, it looks to me like it's being shot by some that lunar probe, and it's on some sort of extremely weird lens, and the picture is all sideways, too, to boot. So I would assume we're looking at the lunar surface. That's what they tell us. Tell us, you know. Oh, my, there's some reflection going on here. <laughs> look, on the, look on the right. Look on the left. Look at the yeah, curve. Look, look yeah. at the shape of that damn sun. Yeah, that's very weird. Well, look, I mean... And not only weird, it's refractive. It looks yes, like. yes. It's the damn dome. Yeah. I am yeah. absolutely confident tonight at 19.47 that the <laughs> mission of intuitive machines is to basically be the, the forerunner of disclosure. The, the clock has started ticking. Uh-huh. And yeah, that's weird. That now that now that you mention all that, Richard, I can see what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. Well, I have been asked by someone whose respect and and um, uh, of analysis I really I really do respect. Send him an annotated version of this image where I label the various anomalies with numbers, and then below well, I write a caption. I will send that around to everybody. In fact, we will post that on the website because. There's so much damn deliberate strangeness in this one image, which, of course, to me, I looked at it and it was like, oh, my God, because that's the image ever since Apollo 10. And my beginning analysis of the potential of the 
a dome from the Apollo 10 heritage images that I've expected to see if we had state-of-the-art digital color with good resolution and they wouldn't keep hiding them from us. And you see it right there. That's the top of the dome. They're 60 miles up. And you say to yourself, how the hell can you have a dome 60 miles high? To which I will remind you, I was good friends with Arthur C. Clarke, and Arthur's third law is any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. We're looking at magic, E-T, magic. And I have all these people for decades who keep trying to make sense of it in stupid terrestrial Kmart terms. It's been frustrating. I'm so glad you see why this is an impossible image. Well, it 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 boggles the mind that they would let something like this out. Unless, no, it isn't. Unless, no, it unless, isn't. Unless, unless, unless they're intending. Exactly. Yes. Sorry, I keep interrupting because I'm so excited. No, After all I this, well, at, well, look, you and I have been at this for a very long time, right? And what has this been but to try to look back through time at humanity's real nature, its real origins, its real history, and lay out for a contemporary audience the reality that we're not being given by any official sources, up to and including so-called education. It's all been censored, all of it. And this one picture tonight brings it totally into focus, and I find it very interesting I've been obviously looking at this from the beginning, that a machine, a machine, a, a corporation officially named Intuitive Machines, which is left brain, right brain. You know, if you're looking at this symbolically, oh, really? We should look at this symbolically? Yes. Anyway, I don't want to prattle on, Joseph. We have three precious hours. Where do you want to go? To remind you, I, I can only go an hour and a half tonight. <laughs> I, I was... I I told you that in the email. I I can only go to about 12.30 tonight. 12.30 my time. Well, say. Well, (laughs) say. So where do you want to go? Uh, This is your show. You you go where you want to go. Okay. um, Tell you what, let let me go back to this really interesting thing that I don't think you're aware of, which is how, which is how you help this dome research immeasurably okay go to, go to item number five item number five uh that would be the project diana radar bounce off of the moon yes okay. and, and this was contained folks in a really important book that has, oh, boy, that, yeah. that has not gotten a lot of play but should because it contains what we used to call in the hollywood biz easter eggs <laughs> and i'm not sure whether Joseph was aware of Easter when he put the two eggs in, at least two. But we're going to find out. So first one was he's talking about the, the hearings, the McCarthy hearings of the hunt of the House Un-American Activities Committee in Washington, D.C., the so-called red-baiting hearings, the xenophobia against commies under every bed, the whole nine yards. And this was the equivalent of Roddenberry's The Dick If It's Real will Be on Television. Because these hearings were not only carried on television, they were carried on a far more powerful medium of the time, radio. It was wall to wall. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing these hearings. And 
the, the, the thread, the paper trail that Joseph picked up on was there appeared to be a subtext behind the McCarthy hearings, which very quietly from the wings kept whispering, UFOs, UFOs. Take it from there, Joseph. Well, let, let's clarify uh, something. First of all, McCarthy had nothing to do with the House Un-American Activities Committee hearings. The, the okay. committee that that he was the chairman of, and we're talking, uh, I think we're talking 1950. Yeah, of course, that was silly. Senate House, no, it could be the House. Yeah, yeah it, it was um, the Senate uh, Government Operations Committee that he was the chairman of. And I have been, uh, I've been, you know, I grew up in South Dakota, and Senator Carl Munch, you may remember him, yep. was my senior senator when I was a boy. And Senator Munch was one of the 22 senators, along with Dirksen, Goldwater, and a few others, that voted not to censure Joseph McCarthy. And he had... Yeah, he had, um, during his career as a senator, he would deposit books in the local public libraries, and many of the books that he deposited were defenses of McCarthy. So I read a lot of these books growing up. So I didn't I didn't grow up in a milieu where my knee-jerk reaction was to hate Senator McCarthy for uh-huh. red-baiting and all the things that he's been accused very wrongly, incidentally. But uh, one of the things that intrigues about the man is that there's all of this literature out there about him, but no one cites the transcripts from his committee hearings. Hmm. So I decided, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get a hold of these hearings. And Richard, I I was dumbfounded to discover that the Committee hearings of his investigations at Fort Monmouth, New Jersey, which is really the series of investigations that brought him to the tender attentions of the Pentagon. <laughs> well, because that's the base in Jersey, the, uh, the what they call the, the Signal Communications Corps. Yeah, it was, it was the top secret research base for radar. Army, Army, COD. I mean, Army back then yeah. was still more powerful than Navy. So it was the it was the military voice, and right. there on that base they had a radio antenna that yep. the Signal Corps of Engineers used to yep. bounce beams off in nineteen forty six off the moon. Yes. And I had yes. not I had not remembered this for decades until you brought it out in this book. Well McCarthy there's there hang on, there's a lot more going on <laughs> Fort Monmouth. Anyway, I, I sniffed around, and I found that the committee transcripts of his investigations into communist subversion at Fort Monmouth were were heard in executive session primarily, so they they had been classified up until 23, 2003, and they... Yeah, and they were only declassified. Hey, we're we're at the bottom of the hour, so let's hold it there, okay? Okay. My guest of the morning is Dr. Joseph Farrell. His doctorate is in theology. Well, how does that get you to hyperdimensional physics? You'd be amazed at how short that path really, really runs. 
You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Oakland. We will be back in a couple, three, four minutes. And of course, I'm really known for vamping. Stay tuned and do not touch that dial. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this Saturday night, the 24th of February of 2024. Lots of twos and 24s in there. My guest tonight is Dr. Joseph Farrell, an old friend and someone who I haven't really connected with on all the astonishing things going on until, uh, well, right now. So, Joseph, uh, we're we're back on the air. Uh, We were talking about the book on McCarthy and the so-called McCarthy hearing. And there's so much that no one knows about because they go oh, yeah. to original sources. So that's right. So so go anyway. I have this surprise about uh, for mamas, you know, when we get to a stopping point. But let's continue with why you got interested because well, the last person on the ride that I would associate UFOs with is Joseph McCarthy. Well, yes, that's, that's the last person I would have thought of too. I got a hold of, of the Fort Monmouth transcripts that uh, had be, finally been declassified in 2003. And the, the reason that the Senate Government Operations Committee gave for the declassification was, okay, we can declassify it now because everybody mentioned in, in the transcripts is dead. Okay. That's an interesting reason. Yeah, that's an interesting reason, which I can te- I can assure everybody is an entirely fallacious cover story <laughs> reason. Because I, I started reading these things. It's about 2,000 pages worth of transcripts. But every now and then, I, I Richard, I was just I was just gobsmacked by why what I was reading because there were references to the Air Force's. Uh, new security uh, 
apparatus called Blue Book, which, <laughs> you know, which is kind of a giveaway about UFOs. And there were investigations going on by, by McCarthy's committee of what was taking place at General Electric at the time. <laughs> you know, again, if you're a little bit, you mean, you mean with our mutual Hungarian friend? With our mutual Hungarian oh. friend when he was, yes, when he was up there, Gabriel Crone. Yes, the HDG engineer, hyperdimensional He's engineer. The hyperdimensional engineer. And then uh, there were repeated, and this is what really, really clued me in, that, that Joseph McCarthy knew at that time. And it's very, very clear when you read the transcript. He was not a stupid man. He had a memory that was just absolutely phenomenal. And when he is present at some of these hearings, he starts questioning the military about their radar experiments that are going on. Now, get this. This is a date that he will drop repeatedly in these transcripts. What sort of radar experiments were you guys doing down there in July of 1947? In New Mexico. In New Mexico. Now, folks, if you're, if you're up on your euphology, that's, of course, <laughs> the time period of Roswell. Now, here's the other thing. These Fort Monmouth hearings are taking place in the same time window as the big 1952 UFO flap over Washington, oh, D.C. Right. That's right. Yes. So, in other words, McCarthy, and, and the same thing holds for Roy Cohn. He gets in a few questions on the same topics. As well. Who decades later becomes a chief advisor to? Donald Trump. Do you, do you begin to see a little sticky plot forming here? <laughs> well, yes, I do. So, I'm thinking, you know, this is the reason they're keeping these transcripts classified. And this is really the reason, because McCarthy has just walked right into the whole UFO thing and all of the classified research and technology surrounding that subject. And he's walked right into it. And more importantly, he's, he's uncovering these people associated with communist cells very clearly. You know, he's not making this stuff up. And on top of this, we, we have to go back. So wait, wait, wait. Are you implying that we had Soviet agents crawling over the country, not because of nukes, but because of UFOs and Precisely. Roswell? Oh, my God. What a great idea. Yeah, what a weird idea. Well, well, well it, it goes with the idea that history, what we think of as history is of a Temkin village. The real right. stuff, we're barely beginning to think we might get a chance to see. Yeah, and this this is I, I think Richard when when you get right down to it, what McCarthy, I don't think he stumbles into this. the man is is uh, not the buffoon that that the the public history has painted him out to be by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he was a judge, he was a lawyer. That's you can tell that he's putting his legal training to use when you read these transcripts. You know, he sets things up very, very carefully and then springs the trap. But uh, I think it's his investigation of Monmouth and, and General Electric and whatever they were doing down Well, you know, one of, the, one of the big backstories of Roswell has to do with radar. Radar, yes, exactly. So that takes you right to Monmouth. 
it takes you right to Monmouth and what they were doing down there. But I think this is the reason why the army. By the way, down there is back where I used to live. It's called New Jersey. Right. <laughs> well, in, in any in any case, I think this is this is the reason why the army went in. Oh, it's obvious now. And it's obvious once you read the transcripts, and it's obvious uh, when you when you read the details of how he was set up. Okay, okay, Luella. Come on, Luella. Give us a few juicy tidbits from the transcripts. Well, I don't have them right in front of me right now, but one of the things that is is very, very telling is that one of the head researchers there, uh, uh, a Dr. Bell, I don't even remember what his first name was, was down in Roswell, and McCarthy mentioned specifically the date of July 3rd, 1947. Now, McCarthy, when he mentions these dates... Well, wait, 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 wait. hang on. Bell, 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 Bell. Ma Bell worked intimately with Ford Monmouth, so he could have been a descendant of Alexander Graham Bell. Well, I don't know, Richard. I don't know. Uh, I, I have no idea. My point here is that the the date that McCarthy mentions is exactly the date of Roswell. So in other words, what you what you see McCarthy doing, and incidentally Roy Cohn, what you see them both doing in their in those hearings where they are present, is they're dropping that date repeatedly. And it's their way of bringing up the subject of UFOs without mentioning it directly and getting it into the transcript record. It becomes very clear. Obviously, the other yeah. comes very clear is McCarthy. Uh, this is something that you find in the transcripts is concerned about the disappearance of top secret documents from Fort Monmouth into the Air Force related to Blue Book. So, in other words, put all the dots together. And what McCarthy is trying to find out is where have these top secret documents gone who was responsible for their removal? Why is there nothing in the log about it? And why all of a sudden does the U.S. Air Force have jurisdiction over it? So in other words, you know, he is hot on the trail. And the U.S. Army has a problem. They've got to shut him down or the whole thing is going to blow up in their face. That's, that's basically what you take away from it. Now, there's something else that emerges in the transcripts. He is also investigating the disappearance of millions of dollars of allied occupation money that is printed up by the United States military for use in conquered Axis territory as we go into Europe. And much of that money disappears, and the plates to print it end up in odd places, including, according to Major uh, Jordan Racy Jordan in, in the House on American Activities Committee testimony that he gives, some of those occupation money plates for, for occupation Reichsmarks end up in the hands of the Soviet Union. person that is transferring those plates is Harry Hopkins, Roosevelt's top advisor. Now, why is this important for McCarthy? Because McCarthy gets on the trail of this occupation money and all the missing money that's involved with it. 
And I suspect that the reason why he's getting on, and I have no evidence of this, but I suspect that the reason why he's getting onto this is he's looking at all of this stuff going on with Fort Monmouth, and he's wondering where the hell is all the money coming to support all of this. So in other words, I think the other thing that he is uh, perhaps in danger of uncovering, and the reason why the Pentagon reacts so vociferously against the man and sets up the Army McCarthy hearings, is that he's also getting close to this very secret system of finance for all of these projects. And one of the mechanisms that they were using was occupation money and money laundering to set it all up. So yeah, I think I think there's much more to the McCarthy story. And the bottom line here is the, the public story of red baiting and all of that <laughs> is about as far from what's really going on in these in these closed sessions in the Senate congressional hearings. Well, it's it's obvious distraction. It's deliberate, you know, throw yes, spaghetti exactly. on the wall and nobody exactly. can figure out what was really going on. And the really exactly. going on is well, let let me let me tell you now and then we'll move into the next part. Sure. When you directed me in the book to look to Fort Monmouth and I remembered Diana. Yep. I started looking for data and except for a couple of press clippings and screwy half tones at the time of the actual oscillographed traces, there's no record anywhere of the results of Project Diana done by the U.S. government through the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the first radar bounce of UHF signals off the moon, and they've made it disappear. Yeah, I can believe that. I really can. Kind of like David Copperfield is planning to do tomorrow night. I, I can believe that. But the record they left was stunningly important. So go to number six, which is right after, you know, the kind of headline in five. This is the result. Project Diana, as published by the New York Herald and, you know, the, 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 the um, uh, oh, what's that town? Anyway, there, there are a bunch of local papers that cover this, but all the major national news, like AP, whatever, it's all gone, sucked into a vacuum. So look at that. On the left is the several hundred foot high standard World War II radar, you know, think uh, chain home from the Brits, radar uh, unit, which was basically a bed spring, much bigger, on a very tall steel tower. And they waited until the moon rose because the antenna could not be moved. So they... They aimed it at the horizon when they built it, and part of the. Uh, I have a question. Yeah, I have a question about that antenna. Is that a phased array? It kind of looks. Yeah, like exactly, exactly. All right. Okay. It was the next generation of sweep radar. Okay. Where instead of physically moving a dish, right, you electronically move the elements on the bed spring, right, and I and guess. and that's how you got a 3D image. Well, for people that are not radar savvy like you and I. Anyway, so they built this at Fort Monmouth, and in January on the 10th of 1946, they used a standard World War II Korean War radar unit, Uh which operated at UHF frequencies. Remember UHF television? Sure do. How you used that to keep tipping the end? Fiddling with it, yeah. Uh, Oh, my God. I I got all my exercise fiddling with my UHF (laughs) antennas in the 
in the living room. Anyway, so they used this and a standard World War II uh, radar transmitter to send a signal, an electromagnetic signal to the moon and get the echo back. And that's the graph to the right. What do you notice that is absolutely impossibly anomalous about that graph? Trying to read what's underneath it, but the first thing is the big, huge peak on the left. I've got. If, on you, the... if you if you click on it, it gets bigger. Yeah, the first big thing is a hundred thousand miles, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand. Uh, uh, not three hundred. Yeah, and then in the middle, two thirty-eight, the distance of the moon. Okay. Right. I see the I see the second peak there at the distance of the moon. What's wrong with that graph? Well, first of all, if that graph is accurate, the distance of the moon that they're giving is different than most of the distance I've heard. But the other thing I'm looking at is there's little peaks and troughs way before you get to the moon. Yeah, I would I would think that's noise. Noise? All right. You know, remember these were yeah, it, these were it, it does look it does look regular though. It looks it looks like it's kind of a declining harmonic in a certain sense. But anyway, that's just my pipe organ is talking. <laughs> but clearly see the echo from the moon at two hundred and thirty yeah, yeah, thousand miles, which is give or sure. set, you know, two forty you're, you're you're seeing quite a it's a very long, flat echo. Why? Yeah. Why? Yeah. It should be a ping. Yeah. Remember a uh, hunt for red October? Send them red. one ping. Ping, yeah. It should be a ping and it's a uh, Yeah. Why is it delayed? Answer, drum roll please for Dr. Farrell. It's rattling around in the damn lunar dome. Yeah, that's exactly well, that was exactly my thing. Which takes you to number it's, seven. It's gonna be some resonance of look, exact look at my number seven. This is a graph I made up all by myself. Cynthia would be proud, I hope. And you see the blue, which is the uh-huh. transmitter, the red is the surface ping, and right. then the green is it rattling around in the dome in a resonance cavity before it's re-emitted facing the earth from the left and the right side of, well, of the map. That that resonance effect then would explain those other little troughs between the big one on the left and the moon's trough. Yes. Because you're, yes, that's what you're getting there. In other words, you know, I keep talking to my skeptics and I show them data and they go, duh. Oh, you you got to give us more than that. Well, the other thing that people need to remember is is radar is not a bounce. Radar is a secondary transmitter effect. So what you're doing when you beam radar at something is you're creating an electric current in the object that you're beaming the radar at, and it's that electric current that you're picking up. Oh, what an, the radar exquisite, what an exquisite detail, because it's, you'd almost think we wrote this script together, right? <laughs> because that was my first indication that the lunar dome, which you see in the right. Odysseus image, you see it is not just an inverted salad bowl of glass. It's a smart architecture filled with electrical circuitivity, and it resonated electrically to the Army signal from Earth in 46. Yeah, that and without you, I would never have been put onto that, or maybe it would have been decades later or whatever. 
Yeah, that graph is very, very interesting and significant. I, I have to agree. That that that's just it's it's those it, it, what grabs me about that graph, Richard, is precisely those peaks that you see between the big one on the left and then the the ping on the moon. Right. It's those peaks in between that grab me, because that's those things look to me to be harmonic in their distribution of some sort or close to harmonic. But anyway, that's just me eyeballing it. I'd have to sit and look at it. See, we but, don't uh, know. Yeah. We don't know the time width of this graph. Right. In other words, is it only one ping or is it at the sum? Because normally when you have a weak signal, you frame, you add, you know, signal to build up the, the, the signal and average out the noise. So are we looking at a several-second photograph of an oscilloscope screen where the pings are coming in every 1.5 seconds because that's the time delay speed of light between the Earth and the Moon, so you double that. So are we seeing harmonics in the dome magnified en route to Earth? You might be, you might be, you might even be seeing harmonics from the entire moon itself. Yeah. I would, yeah. I would, I would go even that yeah, far. Yeah. Anyway, so this was an overwhelmingly important piece of data, which none of my critics even look at. Of course not. But I'm, I'm beginning to think now, if we project ahead, that mm-hmm. that the 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 next few months is going to come to a to a to a cliff, a climax in terms of this. Why do we keep losing moon missions? It's like, you know, 50 years ago when, I've said this before and I'll say it again, we had nothing but the equivalent of Spock stone knives and bear skin. We did it five times out of seven with Surveyor, with, with bailing wire and super glue and duct tape. And duct tape, yeah. Did they have duct tape in 67? Anyway, the point is that now we got all the super modern, you know, 3D printed technology and we keep dunking them in something. It's like no one figures out, wait a minute, there's an X factor. And why? Because instead of going to the safe Apollo zone where the glass is almost gone and you can be pretty lucky in getting down through it, even without, you know, imaging and laser 3D, uh, you know, geometry or whatever, they did it in the blind. They literally only had a radar that told them how high and how fast they were moving, and they throttled the engines, and they came to a dead stop on the surface. And some of them slid. Some of them bounced. Surveyor 3 bounced three times down the slope of a crater, which was five degrees steeper than the one that flopped over uh, uh, Slim, the, the Japanese mission. So what's wrong with this picture? Well, my simple answer, based on this data, they're not accounting for the dome, period. And recently, and we're going to get into this in much more detail tomorrow night, uh, I think we can reconstruct the known history now of the landing of Odysseus, and I very, very late in the game. And it may have been through this show they suddenly realized there was a dome, and that's why they switched lasers. It had nothing to do with stupidly forgetting in a countdown to not flip a safety switch. I mean, that is so outrageously absurd. I mean, the only thing that would be absurder is if the Secretary of Defense of the United States failed to to stop the president for a week. 
we are being covered with cover stories in tonight with the help of my, you know, colleague and, and expert generalist, Joseph Farrell. We're going to figure out the clues and to try to figure out what the message is behind all the jumping dots, which do not call themselves by their real names, as you will see. So anyway, now let me, let me go to the second really major thing in your book, which was you focused a lot on the test at the Aberdeen Proving Grounds. Annie, would you yeah. like to tell our audience who Atomic Annie was <laughs> and why she is crucial to this unfolding story? Well, Atomic Annie was a 28-centimeter, it's basically an 11-inch cannon that the United States Army developed. It was, you know, that's a, that's a pretty hefty, big-caliber weapon. Uh, they, they designed this weapon to fling tactical nuclear artillery projectiles at the Russians. So this, it, it was a very well-designed gun. It could pivot through 360 degrees azimuth. So in other words, you didn't have to re-emplace the gun if you changed targets. You just swivel. Oh, totally motorized. I draw totally motorized. Every, yeah, I, yeah, everything. It was it was the United States military's one and only dual recoil gun, uh, which means that the barrel would would recoil in the cradle, and then the cradle itself and carriage would recoil as well. So it was a very stable platform. Um, the the basic design concept was it was a super gun for the time it was it was a super gun for the time the basic design dual recoil concept was based on world war ii long-range german artillery design so it was Jules Verne would have been proud oh yeah it was it was a very very beautiful piece of engineering it was designed to throw nuclear shells at the soviets but the interesting thing that i think eludes people about the weapon is that if you look at the one and only time that Atomic Annie was actually test firing a nuclear projectile, which it did out in Nevada, the projectile that it fired by that time was considered a tactical nuke, but the projectile had a yield of approximately 15 kilotons which was about the same yield as the big bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima. And that is a giveaway right there. Because if you look at that uh, little boy bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima and then compare it to the artillery shell of Atomic Annie about seven years later, you've just seen a dramatic, and I mean dramatic, decrease in the size of, of nuclear weapons, a dramatic miniaturization. So that's the first takeaway of atomic cannon. The second takeaway that I think, and I think you and I have something of a disagreement on this, I don't know, it's been a while since we talked, but the the second thing I think that Monmouth was involved with atomic Annie was I think they were trying to develop a, a mean of seeing inside of plasmas, not just optically, but off the end of the optical spectrum into the radar and, and very possibly ultraviolet ranges of the spectrum. And the reason I say that is if you look at the if you look at the pictures of, of the fireball of the Trinity test, I, I put a picture of that fireball 
taken approximately one quarter of a second after the detonation of the Trinity test. I put that picture in my uh, newest book, The Demon in the Acre, because it's a very, very interesting picture because you can see you can see the discrete regions inside the plasma. Can you send a copy of that link to Keith in the Skype chat? Uh, you're not on Skype, no. Uh, just email. Well, I, um, I don't. I, the easiest thing would be to have him go online and look for it. I, I don't. Um, Do you have the link? Uh, no, I don't have the link. That's the problem. It's the Trinity Test Fireball, and uh, I'd have to. Yeah, we we have posted quite a few of those over the last several months because of our discussions of Oppenheimer. So, but between now and when we put the archive up, we'll we'll have it inserted in your in your section. Yeah, well that 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 picture is interesting, and it got me to thinking. Well, maybe they're trying to probe plasmas by means of other than just optical means, and maybe they were trying to develop those phased array radars to go peering into plasma. Now, I know that sounds absurd because if you go back to the Manhattan Project uh, and David Bohm, the famous physicist who was developing uranium plasmas, they were trying to figure out what was going on inside the plasma. So they, they would literally insert these little electrical probes into the uranium plasmas that they're shooting around in their psychotrons, and an amazing thing began to happen. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. Oh, okay. Top of the hour. My guest this morning is a really, really an amazingly interesting guy. I'm so pleased that we've known each other so long as we can now go through this incredible revolution that's coming at Warp 9 together. You're the clock? The clock ticking. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Oakland. This is the countdown to the breakthrough paradigm shift that Earth needs desperately if it's to survive. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Hello, man. 
Saturday night, the 24th of February, 2024. My I Don't Think We're in Kansas Anymore program at long last with Joseph Farrell. It's so great, really, because, you know, Joseph has this mind. It's like, didn't take him more than 30 seconds to look at that photo and go, holy cow, Batman, that's a lunar dome. I'll see you on the dark side of the moon. Okay, so Joseph, let us pick up on Atomic Annie because, uh-huh. yes, I have a little different take, but they're they're kind of overlapping. They're not exclusive at all, at all. Well, my basic my basic theory was that they were trying to use that artillery piece because, first of all, it would give them a very good uh, within a very narrow cone uh, way to direct any sort of radar at a target where they're planning to let off a nuclear explosion under conditions where the the nuclear fuel itself that's going to be part of the explosion is under high mechanical rotation. The reason I'm emphasizing is that an art yeah an artillery piece an artillery shell, you know they it's fired through a rifled barrel, and in that particular piece of ordnance, if I remember correctly, the American Ordnance Bureau that produced that weapon followed the German practice of rifling the cannon barrel to a parabolic, uh, cubic parabolic curve. So in other words, the twist in the rifling increases from the breech to the muzzle. Oh, my God. So it accelerates. It accelerates. That's right. So, you know, the, the shell doesn't exit the barrel. It sort of pops out of the barrel. Yes, moving like a bat out of you-know-where. Moving like a bat out of you-know-where and spinning extremely rapidly under high mechanical rotation. <laughs> Rescript for hyperdimensional twisting of time yeah. and space. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly what I think they were trying to do. And the radar experiments, I think, were part of it. They're trying to peer into it. The biggest problem, of course, is, you know, we're all familiar with the space shuttle reentering the atmosphere and having that plasma sheath around the shuttle as it's going through the atmosphere, that blacks out communications. That's what we're told. And my suspicion is, is that very early on, they realized that this would be a problem for communications during the space age, and they had to figure out a way to communicate through that. So, you know, make of that whole hypothesis what you Or, or, I'm sorry, or, devise a receiver 
that was right. not electromagnetic but could tune in, like my little Anchitron, into the yeah. side effects in plasmas in 3D from a hyperdimensional connection in 4 and higher D. Sure. Yeah, you could do any number of ways. Yeah. Well, we have an example of this. Remember X-401? which went into a 600-mile orbit, and everybody had kittens in Washington, Von Braun, and in California. Oh, yes. all that. yeah, the, the, the satellite that went a lot higher than they were expecting. It. Because of hyperdimensional physics. Yeah, they rotated. It rotated. Well, you know, I, I've always found that. So, you know, why would they be surprised at that? Artillerymen have been, you know, they were... They were dealing with retaining ah, you, you don't, Do you know why those guys never gave them a heads up as to what was really going on? Why? Because they couldn't figure it out. When you do this in an atmosphere, if you don't right. hit the target, you always blame the wind. <laughs> or the gunner. Okay? No one ever looked at it because, of course, Newton could not be wrong. It had to be right. Sam. It had to be <clears throat> too much he drank the night before. It had to be the windage, <laughs> the main meteorologist, anything but the physics of parabolic flight of artillery shells. Right. Now, of course, that's been built in as an automatic correction. And since it's not done by humans, but by computers, no one even knows how artillery works anymore. Right? That's true. Well, that's sadly I mean, the best gunners we had were on the battleships in World War II. And I will bet you, my, my, my dad was a gunner's mate, by the way. I will bet you that if you find the right guy who's still with us and you ask him, what did you do to correct for the corrections you could never work out with no matter what meteorology you had, I will bet you will find they had a rule of thumb. Oh, at, sure. at, you know, for kind of correcting on the fly with sure. huge analog geometric gadgets in the in right. the in the in the, uh, the turrets that were stunningly um, what's the word I'm looking for? Steampunk. Well, Steam well, yeah, those old analog fire control computers are just marvels. Oh, they're so steampunk. Ah, yeah, yeah, they really are. I know what you're talking about. They belong in warehouse 13. Yeah, well. Well, they were accurate. I mean, if you're going to fling a two-ton projectile 20 miles and get something that's no bigger than a dot on the horizon, it's that. You can't yeah. tell me that our guys did not have a pocket corrector, a little piece of paper, that had the correction. They had to. Otherwise, we wouldn't have hit any damn ships on the planet. Right? I don't know. <laughs> okay, let me tell you, because I think you're, they used Annie because it deliver a known explosive several miles away from the observers, right. a key part of the checklist. Make right. sure you throw your explosive far enough away not to incinerate your observers. Right. And it could do it repeatedly without having to have any ground facility. You just bring a camera and some other gadgets, and you can do it in the desert, and you don't need to worry about fallout back then, of course. In other words, you don't have to do a whole Yucca Flats thing. You basically do it where you want to, and you do it right. again and again. So it's right. portable. It's r rapid. You get a lot of data. The other thing I think they were looking for mm -hmm. is that nuclear weapons, and I'm telling you, I've got data on this. Do you know that both nukes we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki 
were incredibly distant from the target. Yes, I did. Miles away. Yeah. I think yeah. Orphan Annie, Orphan Annie, yeah, Orphan Annie, you know, an orphan <laughs> experiment, right? Was by a group of brilliant geniuses who said to themselves and to the brass, we think nuclear weapons don't respond to gravity the way ordinary weapons do. Oh, easily, yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think yeah. the range of Orphan Annie was designed to produce a computer correction factor and to do it more than once because the physics changes from day to day and month to month and year to year. So the correct, you're, I know it from the data. The correct. It, may, it makes sense to me. You, you, I I don't have access to the data that you do. I'm just saying it makes sense to me what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense to me. Now let's go back to the plasma thing because sure. when when Oppenheimer came out, uh-huh. one of the things I started looking at was this whole question: Did Oppenheimer really think, a la Teller, that this would detonate the atmosphere and wind up killing the planet? And I say, absolutely not. I've never heard that he did. Oh, it it, it became the big thing in the film. Grove says to him at one point in the film, are you saying we've got a 50-50 chance of igniting the atmosphere? And Oppenheimer. I've never heard that. Oh, oh my God, just Google or DuckDuck or whatever. It's there. And the reason I know it's a lie, it's not a lie. It's a mis- interpretation that because the, the conventional physicists had that you know Gamow uh, was one of the guys wrote a brilliant science book years later um, uh, some of the other guys and of course the uh, teller all thought there was a better than 50 percent chance that they would wind up killing everybody which of course would win World War II <laughs> but it's not exactly the way you want to win it. No, no, it's it's basically in the Hillary Clinton camp. You know, <laughs> well, to kill the village to save it, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> no, that she didn't say that. That was in the Vietnam War. Anyway, so if they were using atomic Annie to measure how radioactive materials differed in time of flight and gravity, that was crucial for any dropping of atomic weapons against the Soviets and or the missiles. And it's something that any laboratory on Earth could do now with readily available commercial isotopes of safe materials properly packaged so you don't have to touch the radioactive material at all. And that would be a stunning breakthrough. Stunning. Okay? So if that's true, then we go back to the the plasma because from, from my looking at the work of of Oppenheimer, the reason that I think he was totally sanguine is because of his deep research and scholarship into the Vedas. Yeah, I would. Because he knew from the Vedas that atomic weapons had been used on Earth roughly 30,000 years ago, and we're still here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I would. I I would subscribe to that much more than the idea that he thought they were going to ignite the atmosphere. No, no, no. That was telling. Now, I have, in fact, I have never heard that connection with, with Oppenheimer. I have heard that in connection with Teller. Yeah. Well, here's something else. Of all the, you know, this is back to Casablanca, as long as we're going to stay in period here, okay? 
Well, in Casablanca, you know, uh, of all the gingerites in all the world, you walk into mine. <laughs> of all the people that Groves and the military-industrial complex, including the president, could have chosen to run, you know, a Trinity, to run White Sands, to run the secret Manhattan Project. Why Oppenheimer? Well, my guess, I'll, I'll, I'm going to speculate and crawl off the end of the twig and answer that question. Because I think they do that because they know of Oppenheimer's love of the Vedas and, and ancient texts. But I think there's another reason. And that reason is they're also aware uh, by intelligence from inside of Nazi Germany that there are German scientists very much like Oppenheimer looking at those ancient texts. Ah, ding, 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 as Art would have done. Absolutely. Go to the head of the class. <laughs> well, That's yeah. why I like working with you because we really yeah. uh, we have two screwy brains that think weirdly, but they <laughs> but they think alike. No, it wasn't a crapshoot. They knew no. because it's a hyperdimensional occult magician thing. Yeah. 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 Remember what yeah, our that... code group in the Signal Corps was codenamed? No. Magic. The magician. Oh well, yes. And what is David Copperfield going to try to do tomorrow night? As they, I have no idea. I don't follow David Copperfield. He is supposed to make the moon disappear all oh, okay. over the world. Oh, I see. As a magic trick. And, okay. when, and when he pulls it off, because the deep state is going to be experimenting with energizing the dome, and it will make the moon appear to disappear like the sphere in Las Vegas, uh-huh. everybody who sees it are going to be absolutely pounding Copperfield on the back and saying, that's one hell of a trick. Richard, I have an anecdote. Since, since you mentioned that's going to be his trick, I have an anecdote I want to share. Several years ago, as I was driving back from the San Mateo Secret Space Program Conference, we were coming from Bakersfield, uh, through the mountains of California, the San Bernardino Mountains, back to Victorville. And it was at night. And my friend, uh, I have a friend named Chuck I was driving with. We're both driving down the highway, and Chuck looks up. It's at night, and, and the moon is out. And we're looking up at this thing. Chuck looks up at it, and he says, look at that. And I look up and look at the moon, and I I turned to Chuck and I said, well, that's not right. And he said, no, it isn't. Richard, the moon, which was at the time supposed to be like in, in three quarters, uh, the moon looked like a potato. <laughs> it looked like... Oh, um, my had, God. It, yeah, it, it looked elongated and like a lozenge or a potato. Well, it wait, was, look carefully at that picture from <laughs> I Am One. And tilt your head about 45 degrees to the right and yeah, about, about 45 to the left. It's a it, potato-shaped moon. Yeah. It, Why the hell is it a potato-shaped moon? Yeah, it, it, looked, it looked exactly like that, that picture, only even more lumpy. Let's, let's put it that way. So, yeah, I you know, we, we both thought that, you know, there was something going on, and the only thing I, I can remember is, is my friend turning to me and says, 
you don't suppose we're in any danger? And I said, no, I think the boys, you know, that's a part of California where you've got all the skunk works in the mountains around there. Oh, so it's, I, it's just the boys with their expensive toys. Yeah, that's what, exactly what I said. I said, they're just probably playing around with something and, and that's the effect. So, yeah, I, you know, I'm not surprised that, that they're going to try and, and do all this. I think they've been prepping the narrative about the alien invasions and so on for a long time in the last few years. And, uh, you know, they need something really sensational now to give it some teeth. So, you know, brace yourselves, folks. Well, I think it's deeper than that. I think it's a lot deeper. And I'm going to go into this with uh, some of our folks tomorrow night, particularly Nova, who happens to know David Copperfield. Turns out that Nova Spivak is good friends with his billionaire buddy, David Copperfield. I can't imagine that Copperfield, with his money and his rep on the line and his amazing illusions over the years, if he makes the moon disappear for a bunch of people in a used car lot in Vegas, (laughs) no one's going to get it. No one's going to buy it, right? In other words, for this to work, it's got to be the real thing. Well, he picked the right time. It's in full phase. <laughs> well, that's not an accident. Yeah, so so given the data that I'm going to be posting tomorrow night, which, among other things, shows on video from several different amateur astronomers all over the world that don't know each other, they posted videos showing something called a lunar wave phenomenon racing from pole to pole around the moon on separate observational windows by guys that had no idea each other were doing this. And I'm going to post a series of them tomorrow night in the radio with pictures, starting with the first one in 2012. And when you do the analysis of the wave, these are physical waves in the dome that cause an intense backscatter and a refraction So looked at vertically, craters that are tens of miles across literally appear to move laterally by their own diameter as the wave passes, telling us the dome is incredibly flexible. Mm -hmm. It's still there optically, and if it can be energized, you could think of it as a surface with a trillion, trillion pixels which means if you take a camera and give it a view of the other side of the moon, of space, of the stars, and then pipe that around in the illusion of the dome to the side facing the Earth, you will make the moon appear to disappear for the entire planet. Yeah, you're, you're basically saying that, that your, your glass domes are kind of Mark one phase conjugate mirrors. Exactly. Going back to Project Diana, which measured it at a totally different, much lower wavelength. So, Interesting. if if they're if they're doing this as a test, that's one thing. If they're doing this, I'm talking deep state now, the the secret world government. If they're doing this to basically try to protect us from real ETs, and it's turning on the shields. Why is there an energizable dome around the moon to begin with? Why is there something in Giza, which a friend of mine wrote about, calling it the Giza Death Star? Uh Why are there pyramids all over this planet? In other words, are they really trying to activate a defense and the cover 
is if they have Copperfield doing a high value, high visibility experiment, right. 99.999% of the people will say Copperfield is good. And that's all they'll right. say. Right. right. They will not understand what's really going on at all. Right. And your camera just popped on. We 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 can save uh, bandwidth by killing your camera. Oh, I'm sorry. No problem. I'm sorry. <laughs> I like the haircut. Well, thank you. I we're <laughs> we we were sharing we were sharing pictures. I guess he wanted to show me. His oh, stuff. okay. <laughs> That's what was going on. Okay. So anyway, um, I think we're on the threshold of something astonishing. The so-called leak from Odyssey, uh, uh, I keep wanting to say Odyssey. Why did NASA name a spacecraft Odyssey and then, in, in, you know, intuitive machines name theirs Odysseus? It's, yeah, it's Odysseus. And I, I was actually thinking about that Thank before the show. Why, yeah, why Odysseus? Because it's a Trojan horse. Well, it's all coded. Uh, it's on, all coded. Whoa, 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 Richard. Okay. Odysseus is in the Odyssey. The Trojan yes, horse yes, is in. Sorry. Wait a minute. The Trojan horse is in the Iliad. Oh, you're right. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Okay. So, okay. I'm thinking there's got to be another reason that they're talking about Odysseus. And what I'm what I'm thinking is that Odysseus is the return voyage home. Oh, no. And that's got... Yeah, the return voyage home and all of the, you know, harrowing... Well, what you're saying, <laughs> what you're saying is this is the symbolic tip of the spear through so-called private enterprise, really guided by NASA, of a mission full of hexagonal, hyperdimensional symbolism, count the number of legs and the hexagon of the body of the spacecraft, which was launched on two incredibly ceremonial dates, uh, took seven tetrahedral days to get to the moon, and was supposed to land uh, where, 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 you know, it's it basically symbolism end-to-end, -end, named Odysseus because it's taking the long way home to the moon. Um. I'm thinking more along, that's a possibility, yeah. I'm thinking more along the lines that the moon represents Troy, and Odysseus is supposed to somehow return whatever it is up there for to Earth. In other words, Earth represents Ithaca in, in, the, in the Odyssey. So you know who knows? I you know I don't know. I I didn't go anywhere near into the symbolism. I didn't have that much time before the show, but that's the first thing that popped into my mind when I read that the name of the thing was Odysseus. Maybe they're planning a secret return mission to this planet. Who knows? Well, see, it works both ways, and in fact, it could be both. Remember, two things sure. can be true at the same time. Sure. So this is so couched now in symbolism. And it barely made it down. Now, let me tell you something really bizarre. And then I want to go on to, you've got, what, two or three other books that you've written since I read the one about McCarthy and got these amazing clues. Um, we need to talk about those. Okay. <clears throat> so let me close out on the moon. If this really is all about returning to the moon so that we get some kind of, of uh, 
you know, climax to a very long, complicated experimental program behind the scenes. The thing I'm concerned about is unmodeled side effects. Right. Because have you noticed that the sun is acting really weird? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, what's, I, the, what's the sun made of? Well, it's made of a plasma. Exactly. Yes. And what happens when you diddle with a plasma with a hyperdimensional technology? Richard? Yeah. What happens is what you and I both know happened in, I think it was May of 1999, the solar winds stopped. Yeah. The big chained up hydrogen bomb model, in other words, (laughs) was turned off and turned back on. You know, how does that work, folks? And so, you know, the the big chained up hydrogen bomb model is not the only thing going on. That's the problem. So, yeah, yeah, it's a plasma. And it's, oh, by the way, it's a plasma under differential rotation. Yeah. So, yeah, ding, 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 (laughs) to ring a bell there. But, but you know, yeah, I, I... I hear you. You know, they're 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 playing around with a lot of stuff and the unintended side effects. I, I worry about those probably just as much as you do, if not more. <laughs> so. Well, then I'm going to tell the audience. I'm going to tell them again tomorrow night. I am recommending to friends and family that you take out at least two weeks of cash out of your bank. Take it out tonight or at the ATM tomorrow, because what could happen. If if this experiment triggers inadvertently a flare on the sun, and because yep. of the alignment, it's a directed flare back to the kind of like a you know what they call that a retro reflector. Right. You do not want to expose satellites to that, and we could lose a lot of satellites. It happened before. Well, yet another argument, Richard, against digital cashless central oh, yeah. bank. Crypto, you know, uh, Catherine and Fitz and I have been beating that drum for, for years, you know, and nobody paying any attention to us. Look, if but, they yeah. show up outside with AK-47s and say, <laughs> you've got to turn over your corded landline phone. Yeah. It's like uh, Charlton Heston, over my dead body, because that phone has been the only thing in the middle of nowhere where the infrastructure goes down much too often that I've well, been able to yeah. communicate to anybody in the outside world. And same thing with cash. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So you should have probably, I would say, at least a couple of weeks because what they'll do, given that in the time frame that my calculations say this might happen, which is tomorrow night, um, the, or North America will be on the night side of the Earth. It'll be like that Larry Niven story where something triggers the sun, but North America is saved because it's on the night side of the planet. So our infrastructure, even from AMP, should be minimal, which means, <clears throat> sorry, in about two weeks, the infrastructure, you know, bank to bank on Earth should be reconstructed. But until then, you're going to need money for groceries. You don't need money for anything else because nobody's going to be able to pay or charge or account for anything. But you need money for groceries. So I would take about two weeks out, maybe more. Remember, you can always put it back if Hoagland is crazy. You can put it back. Just to add my little two cents worth to Richard's concerns, ask yourselves, folks, why Union Pacific Railroad is reconstructing and actually operating steam locomotives. They are? 
Oh, you just know? No, they're my favorite locomotives. Richard, go onto my website and Google Union Pacific steam locomotives. Oh, my God. Hey, we're at the bottom they, of the hour. Bottom of the hour. And you'll love this break. The bumper music, so appropriate for Joseph's decoding of the meaningful symbology in I am one. Odysseus is returning home. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Saturday night, one last half hour to go. And I think we got about a half hour with Joseph. You know, he's getting on in years there and <clears throat> just pulling your leg. He lives in a different time zone and everybody. <laughs> anyway, okay, we got to hit this part because this is another stunning example of how your research and my research conducted, I mean, really, really, 
independence have come to the same amazing gate, doorway, portal to pass through. So let me tell you what I've been looking at. Ever since the Oppenheimer film, where we've been talking about Oppenheimer and the bombs and the nukes and would the atmosphere go off and all that, I have been looking at images, lots and lots of images of nuclear weapons tests. Right. And at the risk of sounding like I've lost whatever, you know, a step or two or three or four cards from the deck, I keep seeing bilaterally symmetric faces in the plasma. Oh, oh, wow. And over and over again. And in the videos, you can see one resemblance, again, bilateral symmetry, not just side-on views. Right, right. Replacing another, replacing another, replacing another. And, of course, the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, my God, they were confirming the Nikola uh, Kozarev modeling of plasmas in the old Soviet Union as gates between right. dimensions. Right. So then I started thinking, okay, what has happened since World War II? We have detonated, we in the Soviet Union and the Pakistanis and the Indians and the Israelis and am I leaving anybody out to want them to feel left out? Uh, the French, the British, the Germans, uh, the Chinese. <laughs> when the, the Germans? When do the Germans blow up a bomb? Oh, Richard, come on. Oh, oh, oh you mean that's the one you covered there? The... Well, not just not just 1944. Don't forget that the South African Israeli bomb was largely supplied by West German yeah, technology. Yeah, that, that, that's true, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I have a big interesting story about CBS and me and tracking down... Uh, the guy who built the gun. Remember, what was the name of the guy? Oh, he had big guns. He was going to basically like the atomic Annie, you know, use big guns on the part of Saddam Hussein or others. Oh, new- Gerald, 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 Gerald Bull. Bull. Gerald Bull. Yeah. yeah. I worked with Gerald Bull in New England. A long, long, very weird story. Very weird. Weirder than many, anything else I've shared. Anyway, back to the present. So I'm looking at these bomb tests and I'm saying, holy cow. Every time a nuclear weapon is detonated, there's enough plasma and enough HD physics going on that souls, consciousness, people can literally migrate between dimensions. And that's why the world is fucked up and going to hell in a handbasket <laughs> since World War II. It's like, it's like uh, what's his name? Oh, 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 Par- uh, Parson. Joseph uh, yeah. Parsons yeah. model on steroids, but it wasn't their their you know rituals. It was the bomb test. That's why we had this sudden rush of bomb after bomb after bomb, 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 bomb. You know, bomber is what's his name said McCain, because yeah. it was opening the gate to souls, and that's what's happening right now in Giza. Because you don't need a nuke; you just need a lot of plasma. Plasma. So, if that's true, is the is the objective of the hyperdimensional turning on the moon shield experiment in line with the sun, designed not as a side effect, but to trigger the sun to create enough plasma so there's a massive influx of souls back to the solar system. Well, Renzer. 
let me let me add a little bit from the end of the twig again. Uh, I just released a book called The Demon in the Acre. Oh, the sub the subtitle of the book is Angels, Demons, Plasmas, Patristics, Holy and, Cow, and Pyramids. Sacred Cow. This is amazing, because you and I have not talked about any of this. No, no, we haven't talked about any of it, no, no. Wow. Uh, the interesting thing, you know, that you're you're talking sun and moon and all that, you know, you've got that Kordalevsky cloud, that that thin plasma cloud between the Earth and the moon. Yeah. Well, it's plus, so you, well, that and everything else. So there's lots of plasma floating around out there to tinker with. And one of the things I, I mentioned in the book is I quote from uh, Dr. Anthony Peratt, who is, you know, the famous plasma physicist, student of Dr. Hannes Valsvane. Peratt begins his book, uh, his book on plasma physics, and I'm paraphrasing now, but this quotation is in my book. He says, we now have the ability to test in situ our theories about plasma. And in the context in which he's stating this, and in the context in which I'm mentioning it, I'm talking not about a laboratory in a building. I'm talking about a laboratory out there in space and in interstellar space. That's what he's talking about. Interstellar, interplanetary. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, could they be planning something like this? These people are just crazy enough to try it. <laughs> and not to understand the side effects. Well, as soon as you realize that these are controllable gates, right. everything changes because we know we know we're in a prison. You know, I don't know whether you've been following all our work, Joseph, but uh, we found a mirror image of Giza uh, five times bigger on Mars at the south end of Jezero Crater. Oh, wow. Indicating that we're living in a mirror bubble phantom universe Superman version of whatever is outside the bubble. And it is a mirror image of what's inside the bubble, which means you have back-to-back realities that are literally facing each other through, like that last scene in, in Star Trek where Spock and Kirk press their hands together through the glass. Right. That's our that's that's our reality in this model. And by using shape charges, i.e. plasma detonations, you can either quickly accelerate transference of souls from here to there or from there to here. And when everybody looked remember, remember the Titan implosion of the submersible? Yes. Looking at the Titanic? One of the side effects... You mean the Olympic. Come on. <laughs> I thought it was tight. Oh, oh you, mean, no. you mean the ship itself? Yeah. You know, that's another... I don't, I don't think it's the Titanic. Yeah, I, 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 yeah exactly. Another show, another show. Another show. <laughs> the point, well, it's, it's still back to the gods on Olympus. Come on. Right. You know, don't, don't mix your symbolism too madly. Anyway, so if, if those idiots went down in the Titan and literally were compressed at tens of a second at like 15, 2,000 miles per second, did it deliberately. 
that implosion of the Titan created under the water two miles down above the Titanic slash Olympic, a ball of plasma. I think it was deliberate. Remember the French guy who'd lost his wife and who was wandering around in a daze? I know that feeling. He did. Yeah, vaguely. He was the the expert on submersibles. He had to know it was a death trap. I think it was a ritual, a deliberately, carefully timed ritual because of what these crazy people are trying to do tomorrow night, maybe, with the moon. I found the Peratt quotation. Okay, now Peratt is, again, a student of um, Hannes Valthane, who gave me one of his books decades ago. I've, I've got an original Alphane book physically handed to me at JPL. Oh, wow. Well, this is from Peratt's The Physics of the Plasma Universe on page five. Quote, the Earth's ionosphere and magnetosphere constitute a cosmic plasma system that is readily available for extensive and in situ observation and even active experimentation, unquote. Can you say harp? Exactly. Ah! This is, this is very, very um, concerning. Oh, yeah, I would say so. Well, it's like, it's like giving H-bombs not to, not to adults, but to kids. Well, look what we've got in charge of the country right now. I mean, come on. <laughs> well, the world, the world, not just the country. Oh, that too. Well, without the world, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have running room to do weird things. The fact that Putin, every third speech, is threatening nukes. Again, at the top of the show, I said I have not felt so uncomfortable with discussions of nuclear weapons yeah. since I was a kid under a desk, saying to myself, yeah. "How the hell is this going to protect me?" Yeah, this this is <laughs> this is worse than the Cuban Missile Crisis. I'm with you there. It's it's much worse. But much. It, it gets even worse or worse. You want to hear? All right, all right. I I need the magical feral semantic symbolism map uh, decoding ring here. Okay. Okay. There are several weird things going on that are all separate, but I think are connected. Okay. The first is this big push for disclosure. Okay. At the Pentagon. Yes. With NASA following. Right. And setting up a specific office to look at alien ruins and cities and techno signatures. Pentagon is disclosing, and we're getting, quote, leaks that I think are actually plants, because it's a time-release aspirin thing. I agree, yeah. Okay, Grush is a carefully cultivated plant. It is. Kirkpatrick's, you know, sudden resignation is all part of the Kabuki Theater. It's all orchestrated, and I think even Steve Bassett would agree that there's a huge amount of orchestration. But the end of the road is we're going to all know we're not alone. Now, what's the what's the war once you win what what once you win the battle for the reality of the phenomenon, what's the real prize in the war? What it means. What does it mean? How do these people, beings, whatever, interact with human beings? Why are we here? What's been going on way out there? Are we part of an interstellar or intertime war? And is it all coming to a head now because of the physics? in the 26,000-year processional rotation cycle is driving the physics to where things possible now that will not be possible for another 26,000 years, right? I personally, if you're asking me what I personally think, 
Yeah. Uh, I do think it's coming to a head. And I hope my listeners will listen very carefully. I do not think it is coming to the head. Eh? Um, but how do you become a little bit pregnant? <laughs> well, once a dome is revealed to be a dome, and you know there are going to be engineers now that are going to start independently saying, what the hell is going on? Why can we land less than half of what we're currently sending? I would, I would only caution people to remember that the historical record, be it Vedic, Taoist, Confucian, Mesopotamian, Biblical, Aztec, Mayan, whatever, that the global record is fairly clear that whoever those people out there are, there are good ones and there are evil ones. Um, so, you know, by their fruits, you shall know. Them. Yeah. Um, and if, so we I, live, if we live, as I think our data overwhelmingly shows, yeah. in a designer solar system. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we've just discovered stunning ruins on, of all places, Europa. When, oh, Andrew, I can when Andrew, oh, what do you see the images? It's stunning. They're all, they're all over, they were all covered with ice, and it's been melting now at a, a rate of about a meter per 100 years or something. And so the 30,000-year event that, that caused the ice to erupt in the first place has melted away, sublimed away, and you're seeing incredible geometries, 3D geometries, buildings and statues and skyscrapers and highways and elevated tracks and everything is on Europa. Under the uh, it was under ice. Now it's being revealed all mantled with sulfur. I will send you the pictures. Okay. Then two or three, no, about a week ago, uh, Ruggiero, who is our friend uh, from England, who is a podiatrist and who is one hell of a talent for doing medical sketching and, and geometric and mechanical sketching. You know, Andrew and he are really top top drawer when it comes to sketching what we're seeing in the pictures he discovered and you know emailed me and i emailed him and back and forth he looked carefully at the latest close-up from io taken taken by the juno spacecraft in orbit around jupiter which is Mm -hmm. visiting the moons in sequence Uh there's ruins on io i can believe it blatantly obvious ruins that we're gonna i'm gonna remember to post them tomorrow night in the news because they're uh, and it's steamboat time it's time for all this to come out and nasa is looking for a way that someone else like intuitive machines says hey guys our bosses have you noticed what's here at the moon there's this damn dome damnedest thing you ever saw and nasa says oh my god you're right and like with david copperfield 99.9% 99.9% of their audience will let them get away with it. And I don't give a damn because we need what's on the other side of this barrier, this censorship. We so desperately need the kick in the seat of the pants that we're not alone. And what are the other implications that, that will this, this will do to our culture, Joseph? Well... We could be here all night talking about those. Because um, all I'm hearing yeah. from the mainstream 
is how damn hard it is to land on the moon. It's not. We did it 52 years ago and older. No, it's not. That's a big lie. It's another big lie. They'd want us to think it's difficult or impossible, so ultimately we're forced back into prison. This is about a prison break. Ours. Well, I I don't know. I'm going to have to think about that. I really am. Okay. Um, How could you have all these independent companies that are so damn dumb they can't figure out when half of them are being slaughtered by an X-factor, an unknown, that there's something they need to look into? Well, I'll agree with you there. What I'm, what I'm, what I'm suggesting is I, you're asking about what I see in terms of how does this affect our culture, and I'm going to have to think about that long and hard. Um, well, let me give you another scenario. People do not relate to robots. I don't care, you know, care how innovative, intuitive machines robot is. It's still a robot, and most right. people aren't watching. Right. They will be watching Artemis II when humans go back and remain like 7,000 miles away from the moon. You notice that orbit, right. right? Right, right. And they will notice when Musk in the Starship takes his nine artists and they go into low lunar orbit every two hours, and a whole bunch of artists looking out the window go, holy crap, look at that. <laughs> and they suddenly beam all their live video of the dome around the moon through what? Oh, it's owned by a guy named Musk. It's called Twitter. Musk. Twitter. That's yeah. why he bought Twitter, Joseph. I will bet dollars to that. Yeah, that's, yeah, I, yeah. I'm with you there because I've had my suspicions that this is not just about free speech. It's about free speech being able to talk about what's going on. The ultimate free speech. Yeah. Who the hell we really are. Yeah, I, I'm with you there. When he did that, I thought, oh, Richard's going to love this. Yeah, we were seeing that one the same way. And everybody, in, in, in view of the example of um, uh, Odysseus not landing upright, worrying about starships, no, 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 no. The breakthrough is going to come if just, they just go into lunar orbit and look down and see what that photo, number four, is showing them live and in real time. And they're all going to be videoing and sending it back to Earth on Twitter. And the world goes nuts. Because all these people are stars. They all have social media membership and followers and cultists and, you know, fans and curs who, when they look at this, they're not going to say in their left brain, well, that's impossible. They're going to go, look at how gorgeous it is. Look at the colors. Look at how they're changing moment to moment. I mean, imagine uh, Lourdes or another, you know, the, the uh, 1800s, you know, Victorian World Fair built in this crystal palace. This incredible glittering, you know, uh, Victorian glass palace. Well, imagine something a thousand times bigger out your window and you're orbiting just above it. And that's what that picture from Odysseus is showing us. The real moon, when you get up close, looks like with the sun in the right position. This is not a small revolution. This is everything. This is for the whole ball game. Yeah, I've, I've had, 
yeah, they're playing for the whole shooting match. You know, I've I've had that feeling for a couple of years now. There's there's something very very big that they're up to. And we have two sides. We have good guys and bad guys, right? How do I know? Because right. the good guys, intuitive machines, are in on it. They're trying to open the door, open the gate, open the portal. They're trying to invade people's consciousness at several different levels. They're giving us real, amazing images. And I think right. someone tried to sabotage them. Yep, I agree. I think someone took a little wire cutters and clipped a couple of wires to lasers in their onboard navigation system, and they were deader than dirt. Until one of them said, wait a minute, we're flying a NASA instrument that does exactly the same thing. Same thing. Now, here's where things get really, really interesting. I think this is 4D chess. I think Intuitive Machines was ready for the sabotage because otherwise the experiment that NASA flew would not have been wired into their computer able to be switched over with a few software patches in an hour and a half. No way. Interesting. It was yeah. planned. I didn't plan. Yeah. So we're looking at 4D chess where you have move, counter move, move, counter move, move, counter move. Why try to kill Odysseus? So it wouldn't show us the real moon. Right. Well, they survived. I don't think they hit the glass on the way down. I think they basically, because lasers are the worst possible way to land under a glass ceiling. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, come on. So I think they tried to make the best out of a bad situation, but they're using lasers. It really took me a long time last night to find the wavelengths. The NASA lasers are brilliant blue-green, 530 angstrom. And that bounces around because the glass is somewhat green because of radiation exposure all these millennia. Right. So landing and having the computer interpret which ping, which echo is the real one. Because remember, at the speed of light, a difference of one nanosecond, that billionth of a second in the echo, you lose three meters. I'm sorry, three feet, one meter. And that's why they landed at six miles an hour, which was almost 10 times their planned speed. And they drifted sideways at two miles an hour, which is nine feet per second. So, of course, they tipped over because yeah. the glass itself fed the wrong data to the lasers. To, to the computer. And, and they, they, frankly, it's a miracle they're on the moon. The good news is, and I think this is provable afterwards, I think they landed upright the first night. They took them all night to figure things out and the transmitting antennas and all that. And by morning, the strut on that side of the lander collapsed, which is why they're bent over now 90 degrees to the surface, lying down like a coffin. Interesting. Okay, we got four minutes. If you're... Rule is you can't stay around to when Andrew comes on. Yeah, I'm fading fast, Richard. I'm I'm sorry, but <laughs> you just confirmed several feral theories, and he's getting tired. Gosh, are we no. jaded? Uh. No, no, I I I stayed over what I intended to stay anyway, but I'm I'm getting kind of tired. Well, I win my bet. Well, I, no, I, I, I have to. Also needing to go out 
Oh, oh, well, that's more important. That's much more important. <laughs> what, what was his name? Her name is Shiloh. Shiloh. And, and what kind of doggy? She is a, she's a rescue. You can hear her whining. Oh, my God, yes. Well, we're talking about yeah, her. We're talking about her. Morale used to love to have me talk about yeah. her to my audience. Yeah, she is a Shiba Inu, which is a oh. Japanese breed that is a very old breed. Oh, my. She's very smart. <laughs> she sounds very smart. She is. She, yeah, she, loves, she, she loves it when I play Bach on Bruno. <laughs> See, she knows we're talking about it. She knows that we're talking about it. She knows when I'm winding things up. She has used to the routine. Oh, my. Well, maybe next time I'll talk to her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, anyway, thanks for having me back on, Richard. I appreciate it. Okay. Um, all right. You're leaving me to the Lord for three minutes. Oh, I, I, oh, I didn't realize. Any, any, any final thoughts? Where are we going next? What's going to happen next, and how can people prepare? Well, what's going to happen next? I have no idea, Richard. Um, Uh-oh. No, no, go ahead. Um, I I have no idea, but I'm I'm with you on using cash. Uh, this this push for central bank digital currency and everything else, I'm I'm totally opposed to. Totally. Dumb, 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 dumb. It's stupid, stupid. stupid. No single point failure. That's a yeah. Thing exactly. to put on your refrigerator. No yeah, single point exactly. failure. Exactly. So, you know, and I think we're going to push for it. I, you know, I, I'm with you. They're, they're building up to something and, and politics has become kabuki theater and where this is going to go. I don't know. Well, I think we can agree on one thing. When we get real disclosure, which is the general citizen going, oh my God, look at who we really are. Things are going to get much better because they can't get much worse. <laughs> And my guest tonight has been Dr. Joseph Farrell. I want to wish him well. You know, his beautiful dog. Take her out. Take her out. You're on the other side of midnight. Andrew is going to uh, join us shortly. And in the meantime, I'm going to, I'm going to vamp. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Oakland. We shall return. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule 
filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this now Sunday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight, uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning. I mean, this is really kind of like a classic program because Joseph and I have not had time to talk to each other in depth for years. Literally, what you heard tonight, we have not been able to do for years. And to find that at the end of his research trail, he's paralleling to an eerie degree, exactly the same kind of information regarding gates between dimensions and cosmic hyperdimensional experiments run by idiots who may not know the extraordinary running an entire planetary experiment with an ancient dome. When we post the videos tomorrow night where you can see the shock waves moving around the moon in the dome, you heard uh, Joseph's, you know, reaction when I just described what you're seeing. We're going to post those for tomorrow night. There's no doubt in my mind, A, a dome exists. B, it's not a dumb dome. It's a smart dome. And C, someone since at least 2012 has been trying to turn it on. So the next question, of course, has to be, if someone's trying to turn this thing on, what was its purpose in the first place? And, of course, one of the things that I've been thinking about is the fact that maybe, just maybe, since domes are shields, all we have to do is look at what would a dome of this scale, Tication, be designed for? To shield against sunlight? To shield against the solar wind? to keep air in, to keep something out, and maybe, just maybe, in the realm of hyperdimensional physics where you can create energy, invisible energy shields against weapons. Maybe, just maybe, as Joseph said, 
There are good guys out there, and there are bad guys. And maybe because our terrestrial secret global government is decreeing that this all should now be revealed on a kind of accelerated time frame, maybe somebody out there doesn't like the idea that they're about to be exposed, that the general population of planet Earth is going to look up with a whole new appreciation, not just of who could be out there, but what they might be doing. And maybe those folks are the folks that are behind Maui. Remember the weird video of things over Maui, shockwaves, stunning nuclear level shockwaves in the plasma sphere. And then later Lahaina, because somebody did Lahaina. Lahaina was not a forest fire out of control. The question is, who were the absolutely evil and bad guys behind it? Was it physical or was it physical and symbolic? Did someone seek to create a whole bunch of plasma, because that's what a raging wildfire is, at 19.5? I mean, these are not trivial implications. And now we've got this bizarre circumstance where, from a variety of indications, both political and technical, it's looking like tomorrow night, David Copperfield is going to make the moon disappear. Now, is that really going to happen? And if it does, is anybody going to really ask the question, how the heck did he do that? One of the things that I didn't get a chance to... um, Uh, bring up with uh, Joseph, which is a shame because I think he would have really been excited by this new piece of data. If you go back to Radio with Pictures, if you go back to the other side of Midnight, remember that's our URL, go on tonight's banner, which says very blatantly there at the top of the page, I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Well, technically, I've got a feeling we're not in Kansas. And it says Joseph Farrell under it. Click on that. That will take you to the guest page. And then right under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items. Click on my name. Go down to my last item, item number eight. As you all know, for the last several uh, weeks, we have been tracking this really amazing uh, technology, this satellite demonstration called Barry One which has been uh, in Earth orbit since November 11th. That's when Musk launched it along with, I think, something like 90 other rideshare payloads into low Earth orbit, low Earth orbit a few hundred miles. Ever since November 11th, uh, Greg Ahrens, who's a colleague of mine, worked with me on the uh, bizarre you know, Arctic Finnish circle thingy that appeared over the... Uh, northern parts of Russia, back in 2009. Anyway, Greg has been working with me on the Barry One puzzle because beginning a few weeks ago, if you go to number eight, click on that, that is a graph, which is now literally on the Barry One website and also on every other website um, uh, around the world, all connected to NORAD and to NASA tracking. Well, about the 2nd of February, Months and months of falling and falling and falling closer to the Earth. The Barry 1 satellite 
began to raise its altitude. Those are one-mile vertical steps, looking like broad stair steps extending from the right on the graph of February 2nd. And then you can see another uh, change on February 6th, then on February 10th, uh, and then on, I think, the 14th, and on and on until just a few days ago, the 21st. And now the orbit of Barry 1 is higher by several miles than when it was initially launched in November of 2023 and put into orbit by Musk's Falcon 9 rocket. How does, oh, did I tell you that Barry 1 is a spacecraft that does not carry an engine? No motors, Ma. No fuel, no hydrazine, no rockets, no thrust chambers, no valves, no nothing. It's a rock orbiting the Earth every 95 minutes until something happened. And it began to rise inexorably every few days, another mile, every few days, another mile. Now, as you know from basic orbital theory, close in orbits orbit fast, farther away orbits because you're going against gravity, orbit slower, and there's a direct relationship. So you can also see if you look at the bottom curve, the same graph, that's the velocity curve. Notice the velocity as the altitude as tracked by the Defense Department and by NASA is going up, the velocity of the spacecraft, as you would predict, is going down, exactly according to Kepler's laws. Except there's no engine. Now, yeah, there is this weird experimental HD space drive that IVO, the company in uh, North Dakota that funded this and put it into orbit in a spacecraft, uh, is behind. But they're saying that the damn thing died before they could get around to turning it on, which, of course, is a lie. And so the huge cover by the official military-industrial establishment, in other words, the deep state, that never for an instant at one level believed any of this nonsense was possible, they looked after weeks of it going up and up and up and up and the velocity going down and down and down. And they say, oh, my God, we can't have that. So they put out a press release from both companies Oh, we're sorry. It didn't work. Better luck next time. Meanwhile, NORAD and NASA, which are tracking all kinds of debris and satellites and gloves and paint flecks and bolts and whatever from, you know, a half century or more of spaceflight in low Earth orbit, because they have to. Because if one of these things runs into the space station, you know, scrub a dozen astronauts sometime. So they have to keep a constant watch. So it doesn't matter if the radios go off the air or if it loses power. It's still orbiting the Earth and it's still subject to what's called skin track, which is exactly what the name sounds like. You bounce radar beams off the surface of the metal chassis of the little CubeSat, and it is picked up as an echo, exactly like the Project Diana experiment with much, much, much higher power and more sophisticated computer control radar, and you have its velocity down to inches per second or less. Now, none of this should be happening. So I kind of wish that those of it stuck around for one more aha, because again, this is demonstrable proof that we're on the edge of a sudden, huge, major disclosure. 
And uh, apropos of talking about this, we don't have Andrew yet. Uh, we're not quite certain what's happened to Andrew. But we do have another one of our colleagues, Ron Gerbron. I think we have Ron Gerbron. So let's bring him on. We'll see. Are you there, Ron? Uh, yes, I am. There you are. Ron Gerbron, our resident generalist. Okay, so you heard the whole conversation. Do you have thought? I heard remotely. I, I heard much of it. I was busy trying to get home. I was. Uh, I have this running feud with Full Moon, and the number of times that I have managed to not make my bus when there's a full moon is is staggering compared to the amount of times that I'm missing otherwise, which is almost never. So I was. It took me a couple of hours, a nice couple, and I found that the gas station gave me a ride. So I've been, I've been on for like the last half an hour. Oh, okay. Well, you heard the most interesting but, thing. Well, I'm very familiar with uh, most of what uh, Joe Kyle's stuff is. Big fan. And uh, so I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Well, the, at the top of the show, and of course, you can obviously listen to the archive, but at the top of the show, I show him the uh, Odysseus image of lunar orbit. Mm-hmm. And he looks at it and he says, oh, my. Oh my! Oh my! It's a dome. You know, I'm, I should actually probably put out an album, "Dome, Dome on the Range." Anyway, so yeah, he, he gets it, and then it turns out that all through the evening, the two hours I got him to spend with us, our research is so parallel, so parallel, winding up with he and I both agree that under the cover of the um, uh, Copperfield experiment, I'm going to make the moon go away. The, the 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 deep six crowd, the the deep staters, the the folks around the world are going to try to pull off some kind of experiment with the moon, which will have a side effect of making it optically disappear. And so what they've very cleverly done is hire Copperfield to run an experiment, a magical experiment, where I guarantee you dollars to navy beans, most people tomorrow morning, if it's tonight, or Monday morning, if it's Sunday night, are going to say. Damn, that copper field is good. And that's it. Yeah, well, managers to blow up the moon. And we'll, we'll probably notice, yes, yes. Like, no, I don't think that the problem, well, if you heard the last half hour, you heard what the problem is, right? More than one. The moon problem with turning on the dome in the next couple oh, of yeah. days. We could wind up now, using a lot of ATMs, interbanking, an infrastructure problem with satellites worldwide. And so I'm recommending people take out at least a couple weeks worth of cash more. If you uh, don't mind us sitting under your pillow as opposed to in a bank, because it's not in the bank, it's in a system and you will not have access to your own money. That's the disadvantage of electronic worldwide banking. It's no longer sitting downtown. Well, maybe that's what they're, planning on using the trivial 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 no the real effect is to test the dome why test the dome possible model which i guess you heard in the last segment i've probably heard them before but why don't you refresh well one is they're trying to shield the earth from evil et bad aliens okay oh, yeah and remember a shield something on the moon that's a dome if it's a shield, it's meant to protect you against something. I think it's for the Earth-Moon system. I think it's our battle wagon, given what shape it's in. 
And if somebody found a way to reactivate the the defenses, turn on the shields, maybe because there are bad ETs out there and they have hyperdimensional weapons and they've been using them in very selective means here on Earth for several years in otherwise inexplicable events like Lahaina. I think our guys to fight back would have to develop that technology and turn it on and see if they can make it work. Or it's a strictly hyperdimensional between dimensions communications materialization device and what they're going to do is try to trigger the sun create so much plasma that a whole bunch of formerly gone people i.e. consciousness souls whatever can come back into 3d a la the weapons effects that we looked at going all the way back to world war ii and the oppenheimer bomb and which it turns out is the basis of the substance and chronicle of joseph's latest damn book and we haven't talked to each other in years yeah i was noticing the parallelism that was that was very intriguing yeah they uh, yeah and if, if you're talking if you're saying that i open up a portal uh portal grande to allow all these spirits to flow back and forth then uh we need something a little tougher than razor wire to keep them out Yes. I think. Yes. 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 So I, I'm right on, right on board with all of that. I'm just wondering whether the systems on the mode. You mean the ancient? Go. You mean the ancient system? Yes. 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 We don't have anything up there that's more powerful than the ATM. But, uh, no. The, no. Yeah. Uh, that we know of. But um, they maybe the that maybe the protective function of the Unit of Dome, uh, it was primary. I mean, it, I don't think they were that they were constructing something that was going to be a, turn the moon into a battle wagon. Um, as interesting as that might be, I mean, they went, somebody went to a lot of trouble with technology we can't really understand yet, parking it there uh, in the first place. So uh, why they would want to roam it around? Uh, but in terms of deflecting, some well, problems, maybe. If you if you need a battle wagon in a pinch, and you know there's one, you know, quarter way around the galaxy, and you can pinch it, maybe that's what they simply did. Yeah, there's probably one of those defunct ships floating out in the Oort cloud that uh, somewhere that would um, be more than sufficient. But um, yeah, but the moon's already still... here; it's already orbiting. And remember, Doctor Gary Latham, who was the principal seismologist for the seismometers on Apollo, who I got a chance to talk with uh, at CBS one afternoon, and then we had subsequent conversations. Um, He was a very, very visionary guy. And he and I talked about how we could humanize the seismic data so the American people through CBS could kind of relate to it. And we came up with sound. We would translate the seismic vibrations into sound waves and produce a sound analog for our televised audience. Well, years later, I'm reading some of Latham's papers on the interpretation of the seismic results, and that's when I realized that they had found the engines in the core of the moon that moved the moon from God knows where into orbit of the Earth uh, a long, long time ago. And then they moved, meaning NASA, Gary Latham from Columbia, where he'd been a professor, to this incredibly arcane, hidden little office in West Virginia 
working for the Department of Energy, which I only stumbled upon after years of looking and much too late to be of any use because by then he was gone. He was dead. Well, I hope he was useful in the year. Well, he published a paper showing the damn engines that they used to move the moon into Earth orbit. What more can you do? So the, it's on the record. It's there. So, yes, the moon is not alive. The solar system was rearranged. Earth is an experiment. And maybe, maybe our guys are trying to create a defense against the owners, a la Charles Sport, returning. Uh, I'm morbidly curious whether they're actually still out there. Because I, I still think we're dealing with pirates and brigands. I think these are next-gens that weren't the ones that did all that stuff in the first place. And that uh, we don't know what, just because the cultures are millions of years old, doesn't mean that they don't morph and mutate and evolve. So we don't know who we're actually talking to. We know who the ones we're talking to think is a good way to present themselves based on the neuroses that we built up our our <laughs> previously. With a little encouragement, I think. More than yeah, that's that's yeah, they're ready to nudge and say, Well, I can nudge them just as well as the those Well the first the prime directive of prisonology is don't let the prisoners know they're prisoners. Well, I haven't read that book, okay. Well, how do you get docile prisoners by making them think they are free? The, the, Oh, well, that's like manifesto stuff. The, as far as prison thinking is, uh, the, the markedly more successful model is to give them a minimal set of circumstances so that they're not necessarily happy there. They can become content because you shouldn't abuse them. That's just that's counterproductive. But uh, you just want them mollified so that they're not going to call it any trouble. I mean, everybody, that, most people that are in prison, I'll stop myself there, or uh, would rather not. Some so they, so some. when they know they're in prison, they try to escape, right? So how do you prevent sure. how do you prevent prison escapes? By not letting the prisoners know they're in prison. Very simple. Well, that's a nice trick. Okay, that's a nice trick if you can pull it off. Although we're not all wearing uniforms like they are over on the other side of the planet uh, all the time. The um. Our individuality is, but it's not to die. Some people in prison are perfectly happy being there because it's a very stable and, in a lot of ways, more trustworthy system. Well, it's predictable. On your- it is. It is predictable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and they. Uh, so, I mean, they develop a sense of entitlement from there. I mean, I'm I'm a little bothered by the amount of uh, exercise rooms and uh, 55 inch wide screen and everything else that are available in prison. You, you can be uncomfortable. It's a little psychology to get them to think they're not in prison. Come on. Yeah. Well, I It's either that or more guards with guns, and that's, you know, a very limited horizon of, of planning. No, anyway, you know, the way we're kept in prison, well, we're, not, we're not supposed to know there's anybody else out there. We're not supposed to know there's family. We're not supposed to know that we're in some kind of hyperdimensional bubble. That's what the ruins on Mars are telling us. We're not supposed to know that, you know, gateways can be created by intense amounts of plasma. Uh, so only the in crowd knows that. And if you heard the last half hour of our conversation, Joseph Harlow 
has been looking at the same stuff and has come to the same conclusion, and we've never compared one note, not one. Right, but I know his perspective because I've read a lot of his stuff. Good. And talk, and talk to Andrew, who, like I said, is his... Uh, well, Andrew also very carefully follows Joseph's stuff. Yeah, I was kind of hoping yeah. we'd have an overlap with Andrew and Joseph on the same show, but uh, God decided something different, I guess. We're still... Yeah, well, he... Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Andrew's... I, I don't know if he's been... If he's been swallowed up by baseball yet, but it's close. It's no, 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 no. It can't, but, um, can't be. The, oh, yeah. They're already... There's still snow and ice. There's still snow and ice up there. Anyway, four minutes till the, bot- the bottom of the hour. Um, yeah. Did you look at that image from Odysseus? The one taken by the ones that they gradually released? Yeah, the one. It loaded yeah, that, yeah. And what is your reaction looking at it? You talking about the one that looks like frost on windshield? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah I, that's a good way to put it. Uh, something is scattering the um, uh, image a little bit. A little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, we don't. Did you look at Did you look at the so-called sun in the image? I don't remember the sun. In the it's brilliant. It's a blindingly white thing in the upper left of the screen. Okay, that's a sensitivity thing then. Okay, yes. Do you ever know a sun to have all that geometry? It's a mirror image. It's symmetrical. It's geometric. It's a half sphere with toggles all around it. Yeah, there's peculiar interactions going on there. I'm still still assessing them uh, myself. Well, it's kind of binary. It's kind of binary. Either it's it's either in the camera, which means they bought traffic cameras, they wasted $118 million from NASA, or it's real. It's what being in lunar orbit really looks like with a state-of-the-art digital camera in color. In which case, nothing in that image should be there except maybe the moon in a weirdly ellipsoidal, distorted geometry. But here I got the good. I mean, you, you you obviously did not hear my quoting from Chris Rogers uh, earlier in the evening when he saw this. Remember who Chris is, right? Chris Rogers. Chris Rogers well, no. is the jazz musician who subs as our audio expert, does sound checks. That's I heard the name. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Ian can see you work hard editing yeah. you know, the shows for each week. Okay, here's what here's what he said. I wish sometimes I had a scientific or engineering background so I could make a qualified assessment of such things as this image. But the bizarre orbital photo released by intuitive machines seems to me to show the dome remnants clearly outlined around and above the perimeter of the moon, especially in the right-hand portion of the image. If not, then what is it? Don't scientists and journalists see this? Furthermore, the weird reflective mirror image of the sun seems to split into two mirrored sides at the same distance from the moon's surface as the apparent dome on the right-hand side. Bingo. Yes, it does. Yeah, that, well, this is an absolutely untechnical, unscientific, unengineering 
jazz musician who not only looking at it thinking it's cool, but he understands what he's seeing because it's exactly what I've been saying about this for decades. And Intuitive Machines just posted a major picture confirming everything I've been saying. Everything. By accident. Break down. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's literally by accident. Okay, we're at the bottom of the hour. Hold it right there. Okay, don't don't go away. My guest this morning is Ron Gerbron. Uh, we had Dr. Joseph Farrell on for the um, uh, first part of the show. And then his stamina gave out. And his little dog had to go out. And, of course, the dog must take precedence. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. How are we going to surf the stunning paradigm shift that is literally waiting in the wings? Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month. 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone, on this last half hour on this Sunday night now. Sunday morning. Sorry, Sunday morning. Here in the land of enchantment with a gorgeous gibbous moon hovering over the northwest horizons. In fact, it's just out my studio window hovering over Bernalillo. Big, big, round. And it hasn't disappeared yet. And I have no emails. So, see, we don't even know based on what was given out before the event that was much promulgated by the Copperfield. We don't even know now whether that experiment is going to take place. We don't know whether he's really going to, tonight, tomorrow night, whenever, uh, make the moon disappear, in which case people would notice. And as a cover to the experiment, well, 
if the experiment that Joseph and Ron and I are describing, in fact, has been canceled, or at least postponed, because you can do this maybe in Earth orbit if the moon is not aligned with the sun, like it's a full moon. No, you don't want a full moon because alignments are bad in the physics as we have measured again and again. And when I say bad, I mean there are effects. Some of them could be very, very, very bad. So anyway, Ron, sorry. Yes. Uh, yes. Continue. I'm following you. Uh, actually, I do think I've never known you to be at a loss for words. And all you are not, but see, something I was going to answer because it was based on what you and uh, Joseph were talking about earlier that I heard before I came on. A little of that, uh, I sent you and everybody else a link um, today to something that was, it was a response to a question somewhere. They were asking about this company that made futuristic buildings. And um, they, um, when it basically was, the guy was fascinated with, polyurethane and wanted to use it as a um, building material. You know, what I mean? and what that meant is you would put in a, an inflatable something, blow it up, cover it with polyurethane. When that's that, you skin it with cement or whatever, and voila, you have a dome. Yeah, there was a, a company many years ago that I actually worked with that was trying to produce these at scale, enclosed interior agronomical or agricultural uh, habitats in case the weather went really weird uh, and it's mm -hmm. totally viable. The technology is there. It can be done just as you described. Um, what happens next? Yeah, well, they did build a number of them, but they were all in the upper Midwest, um, basically in a couple of places, and they have all been uh, it didn't say they were toward them. Maybe they have been, but they're no longer in no longer in use. They're no longer looking at. Them. And I thought, well, let's do it. Right. And there's pictures and so forth on the link. Um, uh, I tried to get it to you before showtime. It's sitting in the email. Okay. So I hate to, I hate to stay teasers, you know, because I mean nobody can look at it because you don't have it yet. But uh, other, you're familiar with the company and. In the first place. Well, there was there were more than one, but the one I'm familiar with, I was here in Texas, and one of my colleagues, uh, a former uh, member of the security state, he worked for the uh, industry. He he had a contract to be involved in this company to make these domes because we were looking at very serious agricultural problems in the out years. Because you know when if you're if you're going through global warming and and the Dust Bowl era of the 30s and a whole bunch of other simultaneous environmental insults is to put it inside something. Well, you can mess with the weather, but if you want to mess with weather as a, you know, as a, as a principle, uh, that could be a problem. But nature pretty well compensates more adequately than we give credit for uh, when stuff happens. And so this is mostly chemical pollution. Stuff they were trying to have build sterile soil, and they're doing it at the same time that Monsanto was pumping out uh, the chemicals that were destroying the soil and trying to get everybody to use those um, one-time only seeds. Uh, and, it was uh, yeah, exactly. They call them Terminator seeds, 
because they basically yeah. will not germinate, which is nuts. But they'll take over everything in the vicinity, even though they're old, and they won't get into anybody else's. Well, uh, how, how do we get on seeds from poured concrete over over um, plastic or styrofoam? Oh, well, they were trying. You were trying to build environments. Right, right. But how is that related yeah. to what we're seeing in this photo from the moon? Uh, well, there are some domes up there, too. There are domes all over the place, and NASA has gotten very creative in coming up with reasons to say why there's a perfect hemisphere sending the picture somewhere. And they're not, as, they're not as sexy as a pyramid, but they're all over the place, and the geological explanations are rather poor. The camera liars all huge bubbles for everything because they don't usually look like that either. Well, they don't look volcanic at all. No, they're part of the, anyway. Where do you think we're going from here? Because sometime over the weekend, the team from, I forget which engineering university, built their Eagle Cam. Remember the, uh, the robot, the uh, Odysseus, carries a kind of a, kind of a gun. Mm-hmm. In, in front of the gun, there is this little spacecraft, like the ball, with cameras and transmitters. And they're going to lob it out like an old-fashioned balustrade from the tipped over lander, it's going to land about, you know, a hundred feet away. And then it's apparently supposed to roll around until it points its camera at the lander, which of course is lying on its side, we're told and take pictures. And so we're looking for all of that. What do you think? In other words, what I'm going to be intrigued with is not just the pictures of the lander, but the pictures of the sky behind it. Cause that's where the dome is. Yes, isn't there may well according to Holger's uh parroting apparently, the uh there's that camera can look there's two of them, the ones that were meant to look at. The there's sky. more and more and more. There's there are at least um well there's all the uh, the uh, Odysseus cameras, which are at the corner which are at least two, maybe three. Then there is a little camera in the ejectable sub uh, spacecraft called Eagle One, which was supposed to be ejected as they were falling down to the moon. And because of their sudden last minute navigation problem, which I think was sabotage, and it was a brilliant save, and we may never know the story because they're probably under wraps for telling the truth anyway on this. The fact is that the NAB program, when they had to reboot it to accept the, the NASA lasers, it would not allow for the launch of Eagle Cam on the way down because they literally had just a few minutes to reprogram the, the software. So they decided to kill that. So the little ejectable subspacecraft is lying in a tube prone lander, Odysseus, waiting to be ejected. And that's supposed to happen sometime this weekend. Then we'll get imagery at low bandwidth rates from that camera. We'll then see the spacecraft lying flat on its side with, I think, one leg broken or, or one strut bent. And behind it, see, I'm going to look at behind it, there'll be this stunning panorama of the dome because you've got a little softball-sized subsatellite lying in the dirt. I mean, it can't look down. It's got to look up, right? So if it looks above the dirt, it's going to see the sky. So that's one. Now, on the tipped-over spacecraft, there is a whole other experiment called the uh, Lunar Interplanetary Observatory or something like that. 
and it's got it's got a wide angle and a narrow angle camera. And according to Holger, who very carefully over the last two days went and found the schematics so we could calculate the actual angles, both cameras are looking above the surface. It's hard to see stars when you're looking into the dirt. And they'll both be able to see the dome crossing in front of the stars in color if they take the proper pictures and send them back to Earth and let us see them. Yeah, it's curious that the cameras on this mission uh, are, well, they're strangely different from the ones, that, and I'm not just talking about one, uh, than the ones that we're used to from NASA, which always seem to be much more esoteric than they have to be. I mean, after all, they stuck basically a GoPro on Ingenuity, and the pictures from that are of much higher resolution than most of the stuff coming from fancy cameras, uh, frame camera things that they're uh, building. Let's see, Michael Malin, his company used to make them. Now he just is involved in the designing of them, and they're built by Ball Aerospace, and they're a major spook supplier. Yeah, and Ball, Ball Aerospace is just north of me here in uh, Denver, Colorado. Yeah. And Boulder. Yeah. Don't forget Boulder. So, oh, no. So continue, continue. Facilities under the Denver Airport. <laughs> um, How could I? Never. Which, yeah, you probably have. You probably haven't spent the one in the tunnel. <laughs> a bit far away. Uh, wait a minute. Are you implying I'm an insider? Oh, of course, of course. Yes, you're. Yes, you're a um, secret, uh, secret forge for something. I yeah. do notice that I'm being mentioned a lot out in the uh, in the press, the media. I had a friend of mine. I had a friend of mine uh, send me an email the other night. He said I was. He lives here in Albuquerque. I haven't seen him for years. He said I was tuning through the radio the other night, and there you were on this station, Albuquerque. Oh, you have a you have a terrestrial link there. I I think it might have been a rebroadcast of Coast, or maybe uh, I'm 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 not sure because I didn't have time to follow up. But the fact that he can be tuning an average broadcast radio in the middle of the night in Albuquerque, and there I am, it's not trivial. I mean, the odds are pretty much against it. No. There's only a few stations when it gets late enough. Your show isn't that late. You know, despite the title, I mean, it's not. Uh, well, it's the other side of midnight on the East Coast, where our important folks yeah. are, like Keith and Joseph was in Central tonight. So, mm. anyway, we got about uh, fifteen minutes left. Let's not waste it. What pithy conclusions do you come from looking at that? I'll ask you the same question I asked Joseph. What do you think is going to happen next? They're going to try and explain why the picture looks the way it does. Okay. And I, I'm, I'm curious. Like I said, I am still assessing this. You know, I, I mean, just looking at it without uh, any um, second thoughts. You know, like, hmm, maybe something's funny here, or maybe they jazzed it up for, you know, publicity reasons. No. But, um, no, it looks like it looks like exactly what it looks like. But it makes me think of... Uh, uh, frequency and bandwidth because the one thing that NASA has been do doing since the beginning um, is 
being totally fascinated with having as many different filters on their cameras as possible. Oh, this is nowhere near that sophisticated. This is a damn GoPro with a different lens on the front. That's all. It's it's yeah, well, it's, it's, it's video. Yeah, I thought in Earth orbit, they were going to get amazing shots. And that was weirdly compromised in lunar orbit because I think it was dumbed down. But I have good programs to retrieve data. And the, and the proof of that is Chris Rogers, who, again, I have not talked to, takes one look at the picture and says, oh, my God, look at the dome. He sees every part of it that's there. And I'm making up this annotated version, which I'll send around to our team and to some insiders who specifically requested it um, so that, uh, you know, he can, he can, everybody can see, you know, where we are with this, which is, this is a, a, a stunning breakthrough. Stunning breakthrough. Okay, I think we've got Tim. I think we've got Tim Saunders with us. Tim, are you there? Good idea. Tim? Well, it's morning, yes. Good morning from Turkey. This is, our, this, this is one of our nautical guys. He's a designer. He's an engineer. Jim? You. Uh-oh, who's getting a feedback? He's a designer. We're getting a really anti-hide loop. Oh. Yeah, Infinite number of voices asking me the question. I'm waiting. Yeah, I, I, I think we have fourth of the root into Skype. We need to kill everything to one case. Can you do that? I, I, I think we have oh, to kill everything. Do that. Sup? So, I'm not. So let's do that. Okay, Keith, can you redial him, please? Okay, he's working on it. So, Ron, in the meantime, you have ten priceless minutes. Fill them with something. We're all we're on the edge of this paradigm shift because how can they? I mean, Joseph asked the obvious question. Why are they letting us see this? Well, yes, that's that's where I was getting to with all of the uh, colored filters. They have given over the years much more information than they admit. And it's like if they get caught, because remember, I, uh, I process image. You know, I, I'm I'm looking at them and I'm going, well, they they framed this beautifully to get the portrait stuff in the middle. Mother talking about some little ripples down the corner indicate uh, petrified sand dunes. And I, I've always found that curious. And I finally realized that they are cataloging all the stuff that they could otherwise get uh, just ripped about after it all comes out. And you just ignored it and you stayed away from this other thing and you this, that, the other. No, they're giving us most of it. It's very seldom that they totally redact or completely screw up a picture. Sometimes they do creative things to blur them, but, uh, you know, they have, they have cataloged all those things. And then they have they, they think they didn't want to show us, and they've run the rovers over them and crushed them to crush through the delivery. Hey, I think we got Tim back. Yeah. Tim, are you there? Hi, yes, I'm back. Oh, you're back and you're crystal clear. I love nautical uh, designers who are crystal clear. So what do you think of our conversation? Did you hear the Joseph part? 
Yeah, I've been listening since the start. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, for me, I am on the fence about the whole zone business. You know that. But, <laughs> but I'll, you know, but I think there is uh, an interesting question to ask. If you had some money, I would bet. I would bet you. I will clean. Well, you have. Some- I might bet you. <laughs> Well, I'm going to because if I'm right about the dome, I'll never have to work again. Anyway. Anyway, well, let's discuss this another day. But uh, I think the interesting point is what Odysseus is carrying on board. Yes. Go through it. I go through it. If you wanted to prove there is or there is no dome, what would you take on board? You carry radio frequency multi-band path receivers to measure the electromagnetic characteristics, particularly if they try to turn it on. And that didn't catch my ear, but thanks for that. I, what caught my ear was the LIDAR, finally, and mm-hmm. the experimental LIDAR, which apparently saved this landing. And secondly, uh, laser reflectors, which apparently will be used as a, an optical boy for future missions. Yeah, well, as LRO goes overhead, 60 miles, give or take, it's going to ping the laser reflectors on Odysseus, and it will know exactly within centimeters where it is, exactly on the moon. Not only where it is, but surely wouldn't the triangulation through multiple reflectors give you a, uh, a hint of what may or may not be above it? Well, if you have a standard, in other words, if you have a very high signal-to-noise return laser reflector, which is a total reflector, you shine a laser at these little mirrors, and they bounce 100% of it right back to you. Then any other reflections from the dome, you simply filter out with the computer in a time code, so you get ping, 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 ping. You look at the floors, you look at the construction, you look at the geodesic, you look at everything, because you've got a standard on the actual surface. And potentially, if there is a dome, you may even shine a laser in a different direction to see how it may or may not be refracted. To the yes, exactly. And now we know that they were carrying two sets. So you, I thought there were four, but maybe I'm wrong. No, there was, so, there was a spacecraft set, the ones I think they clipped with the wire cutters. Then there was the NASA experiment that just happened to be, the, the term is plumbed in, like mm-hmm. building another bathroom in your house. They just happened to have the NASA data available in the computer already wired, so all they had to do was switch software. Just switch software. Like it was planned. Well, as a backup. But yet. Yeah, but why would you need a backup? Because the odds of what happened happening, that some idiot did not turn the off switch on before they sealed up the payload and sent it to the moon. And B... They only found out about it, you know, an hour before they were going to crash because they happened because the orbit was too elliptical to turn on the lasers to get a moon pulse to get an altitude. And if they hadn't had to do that, they wouldn't have found it until five minutes before they landed. And with no lasers, they would have crashed. In other words, the odds of this happening by accident are millions to one. Millions. It's a kaboom. Why do you order? 
Yeah, well, why do you reject the uh, idea so strongly that they would have uh, integral backup capabilities? Because they never talked about it, because they didn't advertise it. Normally, when NASA... Oh, they don't... Yeah, that's a, yes, they do. Yeah, they absolutely do, because NASA has a private contract with another private company to produce this laser package that's on the current spacecraft and market it commercially, and you'd advertise that we're doing a live working experiment. In other words, nothing about what it would do in a pinch came out, and that's antithetical to everything the tech people in NASA had done for 50 years. They're always bragging about spinoff. They're always putting their name on things that will go from TR1 to TR9. And TR stands for technical readiness, meaning you put it on the market and people buy it and it works. That was their whole yeah, thing being on the mission, but they left out this huge gap. Oh, by the way, if they can step in and help you, which is nuts, unless they didn't plan it that way, somebody below management quietly planned it because there were rumors we're going to unveil the dome. They're going to try to kill us. This is our backup, and we don't talk about it. You got to think conspiratorially. You're too oh, you're you're you're, 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 you're too naive, Ron. Uh, uh, <laughs> I think uh, that'll get a laugh out of everybody. Uh, the um, no, the thing is that somebody didn't want this to work. That there are good guys and bad guys. So the ones that don't want it to work are the yeah. cover-up crowd. So, Tim, I want to bring in Tim. Tim, what are your thoughts? Yeah. Is all this just unfolding by chance, or is there a plan here and disclosure is at the end of the tunnel? Well, you're, you're feeding the answer, but I think this, it's not happening by accident, for sure. There's definitely a strategy here. Um, so, what we're going to find out is what I'd like to ask you. That, let's just say tomorrow, what would define... 100% proof that there is a dome. Let's just say it's already in the bag. Let's just say it, it's common knowledge on planet Earth that there is a dome. I want to ask you, what next? Well, A, who built it? What super gods were they that could put a dome over a planet 2,000 miles in diameter and keep it there for billions of years in a form where you can press the on switch and the damn thing comes to life that's what we're seeing with those shock waves, which I'll put the videos up tomorrow night. And we have multiple observers, so there's no doubt this is real stuff at the moon that should not be happening. We're seeing energetic events. So I want to know, A, who made it? Because, B, are they still around? And, C, I want to know how it works because we can adapt it for all kinds of things, including stopping cold thermal nuclear war on Earth. Mm -hmm. Well, my take on it is have dome will travel. So <laughs> if there is a dome, then the moon is not, it's just parked in orbit right now. Exactly. That's what Ron and I have been saying for decades. Yeah. And I, and I know, I know when to a Thursday when it was brought here. I can prove that too. I'd love to hear about that sometime. I, I am going to He picked up for a, a Thursday as well. I just like Tuesday. Yeah. Okay, we got two minutes, guys. What what forward thinking thoughts or final thoughts do you want to impart? 
I did think of the brilliant, uh, brilliant insight that I was trying to think of half an hour ago. Uh, the linkage between these physics that they're looking for is something intangible. It's music, it's sound. In other words, the vibrations are what's not that, not vibrations of sound, not vibrations of hyperdimensional ohms, not anything, but everything has a vibratory rate. And those relationships transcend all of the ancient physical measurement by Alatul's uh, measurement. Because why and why do they? I agree. Because everything at every level has to be resonating. In other words, it's a physics of reality. Physics yeah. of reality. Yeah, they're they're tinkering with reality. Yes, physics of reality. So get some cash out of your banks, folks. You may need it. It will not kill civilization. We have backups, but it could be really bad if you're not prepared. And food costs money. Hey, I want to thank my guests tonight, Joseph Farrell and Ron Gerbrun and Tim Snyder. Bumper night, really. Good minds, good conversation, incredible implications, which is going to segue us into tomorrow night. We're going to do a down and dirty deep dive into David Copperfield, the connection with the Intuitive Machines mission, and maybe we'll even have some new pictures to talk about. So until tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel. Remember, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.